0: Both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So, I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company, will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community, both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August, 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early-stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, which is Toby Bazzuto, who is the CEO of the Bazzuto Group perhaps the largest apartment developer in the Washington region and also up and down the East Coast, one of the leading ones. Toby is the third Visuto executive I've interviewed, uh, the first being Tom, his father, the founder of the firm, uh, back early in the podcast, and then subsequently Julie Smith, who is now the chief administrative officer, but I met her in the early 1990s when Tom and I talked about workouts back then, and they were growing their property management division at that time. And then, of course, now I'm interviewing Toby because he's now the CEO and leads the firm in many ways now, both in theme and in thought process. Toby is very similar to his father in many respects, and we talk about that in uh, his background, his leading up to the industry and what he's doing now. But he also contrasts from his father in, in significant ways. One of which is his proclivity and interest in music, in which he established in college uh, and earlier uh, went to college in Colgate and he was a leader of a band while he was in school. And then after school, decided to go into the record business. And he did that for about a year, realizing that really that wasn't what he wanted to do long term. Uh, But he is a uh, composer of music, and uh, we're going to play a little piece of his as we lead into the conversation in a minute or two. So he decided not to go into the music business and sat down with his dad and said, so how can I get into the real estate business? I'm thinking about that now. His father said, not here. Let me introduce you to Columbia National, a mortgage banking firm, and they will teach you the business a little bit. And he spent about three years there learning how to interact with people in the industry and learning about the basics, and then went on to get his graduate degree at NYU and his master's, diving deeply into the development sector and what he really was interested in doing eventually. Came back and joined his father's firm as a development analyst actually started the week of 9-11, 2001, and had an interesting story about that, which he shares. But then he dove in deeply into the development sector, and he was taught by uh, Tom's partners, Rick Mostyn and John Slidell, how to analyze deals, how to sites, and the whole process of development, and then facilitated his growth and his career. He also participated with his father in a program at Harvard Business School for family offices, learning how to deal with the transition of uh, influence from one generation to the next, which was interesting to him. And he talks about that. So because of the, the, the creative aspects of development, that's really what he is most interested in. However, he's also a people person and he talks about interacting with people and his motto uh, in hiring is looking for kindness, humility, and intelligence among his employees. The company is now 35 years old, founded in 1988, and it's been the honored as the Washington Post's top workplace for eight straight years for large companies. It has 3,000 employees, 2,500 are in property management, and they manage 91,000 units nationally. Uh, So he also encourages the employees to give back, and they set up a program called RISE, which he talks about in how people can take off work and dedicate time to the community. So as a lead-in to our conversation, here's an original piece of music written by Toby which will lead up to our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to icons at DCR Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I interviewed your father, Tom, in January of 2020, before the pandemic began. At that time, you had been CEO for only about five years or so, maybe a little less, after taking over from him. At a high level, please share a bit about that transition and how your philosophy has differed from your dad and how the role has changed since you took the reins. We'll dive into more details later in our conversation at a high level. Well,
1: it's interesting that you pointed out that it was January of 2020. Yes. And so not only did our business naturally evolve, but the world changed dramatically, perhaps unnaturally. Yes. And who would have known in January of 2020, and maybe only a few people, what, what kind of ramifications the the pandemic that ultimately came had uh, on our industry, on the world, uh, on working from home or in the office, etc. But to your point, that was in in the relative infancy of of my role at the company. And I'll start by saying, I, I believe my father Tom uh, had been extremely selfless in that, by any stretch of the imagination, could have continued to have been in the CEO role. Um, A few years prior to me taking over which was in 2015 he had bifurcated the president and ceo role and i took a president role Mm -hmm. and the 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 thought was that i would learn i had run our development company for six or seven years and had become i hesitate to use the word expert but proficient in one thing Mm -hmm. and needed a larger macro view of the company so by being in that president role, I was afforded the ability to look at different divisions, but I give him all the credit in the world because as part of a succession, a long-term succession plan, he sort of, he took a step perhaps sooner than he needed to, let's put it that way. So an incredibly selfless move. And in those, I guess it's been eight years since I've been in this role and the world has changed, but our business model is the same. And it's still predicated and rooted in a value system that my father put together with his partners 35 years ago, which is when we started.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So as I usually ask, please talk about growing up as Tom's and Bar- Tom and Barbara's son. Where did you attend high school and tell us about growing up.
1: Sure. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I've moved back there and I, Went to a a high school called Gilman High School, where my son is currently an incoming freshman. My mother and so my father obviously had started our business in 1988. I would have been about 14 at the time. Okay. And my mother had a sports marketing company, ostensibly a marketing business that did sporting events and things Mm -hmm. of that nature including some Olympic trials that were in Maryland and some other things. And because people in the industry know my father so well, they often, they don't know that my mother was actually a a pretty profound impact on me in in the business sense. And she was, I, I think my father would say the same thing. She's, she has been a rock for both of us and quite an inspirational person, particularly at a time when she grew up where, being a very intelligent woman. She was a valedictorian of her high school. It, it was not necessarily commonplace to go into the workforce in the late 60s. So it, it was, she She was somewhat of a trailblazer in that, in that arena. But I did grow up in Baltimore and still have an affinity for it and been very involved in a philanthropic way, but also in a Development way, we've done a number of projects in, in downtown Baltimore that we're quite proud of and in Baltimore County as well. So, when
0: you were a little guy, did you run around looking at projects with your dad and did, did he kind to, of influence you a little bit? To That's-
1: some degree, I think perhaps subconsciously, we had he used to take me on site visits. You know, it's very cliche and stereotypical story, but he would take me on site visits on the weekend or sometimes during the week. When I was 16, I worked. He had me work as a laborer on one of our construction sites for the summer, and Mm -hmm. it was extremely hard work. And I think that he was showing me, wanted me to understand and appreciate how hard people work and how uh, privileged and blessed we are to have the education that we've had that gave us some other opportunities in addition to that. So that was very formative in my thinking.
0: Hmm. interesting so then you went on to colgate university yes so talk about talk about that experience and why did you choose that school
1: a number of friends of mine like a lot of these things it just ends up being happenstance a number of friends of mine from growing up went to colgate were upperclassmen and my father had gone to hobart right with william smith and so there was somewhat of a family. Affair with liberal arts, small liberal arts colleges, and in this case, both in upstate New, New York. York right. I attended Colgate University and uh, loved it, really loved it there, and so so much so that in in recent past year, in the past six years, I've served as a, a trustee.
0: Oh, that's great!
1: Of the school, and like rather, rather did at Hobart. Yes, right? and another thing that he did that. It's funny how life has some symmetrical moments. Uh, my father had been the board chair of Hobart and William Smith and I am going to be the incoming board chair at Colgate, uh, starting next June of 24. So that will be a three to six year term. And I am blown away by the opportunity. It's a lot of fun. And furthermore, we're doing a lot of building projects. So it's right in my sweet spot of what I know for a profession, um, but it's it's great to give back to a place that has been so meaningful in your life. So it's been it's been terrific. It's a
0: beautiful place.
1: Thank you. It is very beautiful. I, I actually took a camp,
0: uh, American Management Association camp, on Lake Moraine.
1: Is that is right? Literally right next. Yeah, to yeah right down the and, street.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. School, between my senior year in high school and first year in college, so
1: oh wow, I got a chance to see upstate New York. So yeah, it it's pretty. Fun. Yeah, it is very pretty. Very desolate, but very pretty. Yeah. my nice son pleasure. actually lives in Columbia County, which is on the east side
0: of the Hudson River. Oh, sure. You know, a yeah, rural location, so beautiful
1: as well. It's pretty
0: up there. It's great. So, so what influences did you get at Colgate? Did you learn anything
1: specific that you took away from it, or? Yeah, I'm a. Whereas I recognize and appreciate the value of a non-liberal arts education, for me, liberal arts was extremely transformative in my life and that it was multidisciplinary. right so i'm learning everything from science to literature i was an english major which to this day i think even though it's not the most logical connection to business i think it's helped me more than any other thing i've done and i was a music minor and so those are perhaps is that left brain i guess left brain creative things um, this, it, which in some ways left me at a bit of a deficit for business. So it, well, I guess we'll talk about it in a minute, but my first career was in real estate finance to sort of exercise mm-hmm. and learn that portion of the brain. But I, I do think a liberal arts education, at least for me, really helped give me some context to the, human, to, to the humanities, to, to the world that we live in and versus a more rifle shot education. I ultimately went to graduate school at NYU for the real estate program, Mm -hmm. so that was decidedly a rifle shot, but I think having a a more shotgun approach to education growing up was really changed my my life.
0: Did your mother or father encourage you to do that, or what were your inspirations to
1: do that? I imagine so. I I don't recollect exactly what the genesis of it was, but Mm -hmm. they had both gone to colleges that were liberal arts schools. And so I and had been avid readers and consumers of music, and my, my mother was a, is a very good pianist. My father and mother are avid readers, so I grew up in an environment where learning about everything was a valued trait and sort of a non-specific <laughs> intentions, meaning you go mm-hmm. and you learn everything you can sure. and then figure it out. So I think that's that's very likely what the genesis of that was for me. So then right after college, what
0: was your game plan?
1: Well, rather interestingly, during college, I thought because of my love for music, I was a musician in college and mm-hmm. had a, a band and quite prolific band in college. Really? Yeah, we played almost every weekend at local schools. And as you can imagine, upstate New York, there's Cornell and Ithaca and sure. Syracuse, Hamilton. So we would play these places this rock and
0: roll or what were you? Yeah,
1: doing? it was a all original band and it was quite fun. And I played in, in that case, I played the guitar and I was the singer, but it was a great, I was fortunate to be in a pretty good band. Did you
0: write your own music or was we it... did? We
1: wrote all our oh, own really? music. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. So it was pretty fun. And we, I think we get paid, I don't know, 50 bucks each, a hundred bucks each, but for a college kid, Doing that twice a week. Could you record any of it? We did. We recorded a CD, if you remember those. Oh, sure. Yeah. We went to Pennsylvania and some, somehow ended up in a recording studio.
0: That's
1: fine. I don't remember who paid for it, but it's, I uh, you know we would sell the, the CDs. Uh-huh. So during college, I thought I would like to be in the music industry as a profession. And the, the started interning every summer. For record companies in New York ah. City. So I worked for Sony Records every summer. And it randomly became so good at it that they actually hired me as an employee when I was Sony. a senior at Colgate. So I worked, I went to school in the morning and I worked out of my fraternity dorm room, my fraternity room, as a marketing person for Sony as a part-time employee. That's cool. Yeah,
0: it was pretty cool. And that was great fun. You're just on the phone, down the was
1: up. It was pre-internet, or the internet had just come out, and so this would have been in '95 and '96, right? Literally, AOL was the vehicle by which you got on the internet. Oh yeah, it was, it was Remember that was, you know, sound? Or, yeah, <laughs> right. And they sent you a CD-ROM. Do you remember that? Yes. And at the time, marketing was there was no social media, so marketing for any new artist was done. Uh, Organically via grassroots. So you'd go around to record stores and college campuses and you would hand out the CDs. Of course. And try to get buzz for these bands or when they came through, help support them. So, very long story short, I did that. And when I graduated, I worked for lecture Records for one year, which is a, a part of Time Warner or I don't know, In that. New York City? Yeah, New York City. And whereas I enjoyed it, I quickly realized. For me, at least, it wasn't going to be a career. It was more of a something I enjoyed. But
0: So what was the revelation point there as far as what, you know, um, that it wasn't going to be a career?
1: Respectfully, I think when I looked at the people that were in their 40s or 50s that had sort of reached the pinnacle of their career, I didn't see myself in that. It was very non-business-like. It was very eccentric. And you know, there are attributes to it that were probably mm-hmm. extraordinary. But it just wasn't for me. I'm not sure how I came to that revelation at 23, but when I came to see my, my father and his partners and expressed interest in working here at Bazudo, and my father's excellent response is that was that I should go work somewhere else first and then go to graduate school and then come to work here. So I worked, as I mentioned briefly, at Columbia National, which was a real estate finance company of course that you remember.
2: Of course. Um,
1: and I learned from some great, great people there, mm-hmm. the, the finance side. I worked as a financial analyst, essentially. Of course. And then was fortunate enough to go to NYU, as I mentioned before, and concurrently intern at J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan had been a client. So why NYU and?
0: Why did you decide to go to graduate school? Is that something that I, you had
1: kind of thought you should do? Yeah, I think the the as I mentioned before, the benefit of a liberal arts education is that you it's pretty broad, a ma- master of many and, excuse player, of many master of few, as they would That's say. Right. And I needed either, in my opinion, either an MBA or a master's in real estate. And mm-hmm. because I knew where I wanted to end up, which was ostensibly the family business, if, if I was to have mm-hmm. joined, that a real a master's in real estate would give me a faster uh, either trajectory or, more importantly, confidence to understand the subject matter. So I did that and then joined the company at about 20 years old as a, what we call development analyst. Mm-hmm. So how long were you with
0: Columbia National? Three or
1: four years, three and a half years, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you know how long to, do, to be there? Whether you were ready to go to graduate school and kind of make the next step, yeah,
1: I don't recall exactly what created the durational
2: right. change,
1: but I, I, I remember it feeling appropriate. I had done this essentially junior role there right. for a number of years, and they taught me so much, and I'm yeah. so indebted. It's a great place to start in the industry. Fabulous. And of course, that's where I started too, somewhat. So of course, and. I think that that ended up being uh, very, very formative. And because J.P. Morgan had been a client, they were kind enough to say you could intern during the day while school was at night. So I was able to keep getting experience just over and over and from absolutely extraordinary people and hopefully learning something from osmosis. So I think that was extremely helpful. To
0: me. Well, what's interesting about mortgage banking is how much of a generalist business it is. It's perhaps as broad as any of the disciplines in our industry because you have to know just about everything about a property to underwrite it and make, you know, make recommendations to investors and the whole thing. To understand the process, you got to know the environmental issues, you got to know the physical issues, you got to know the financial issues. Absolutely. It's really a you know, it's pretty much a multidisciplinary business, you
1: know. It is. And then there's there's an emotional intelligence component to it. I think very successful mortgage bankers are the ones who are best able to A, work with their client, but B, figure out what the lender in this case wanted as a product. And how to best represent the lenders. Both the lender's interest and or the client's interest, and, or a little bit of both. But what you
0: just explained you know, indirectly is
1: the ultimate conflict in our business, in
0: that business, and that was the dual agency piece, and I got caught up on that occasionally. On the
1: client owner?
0: Yeah, so for instance, client, um, if you're a correspondent under. lender, if you have a representative correspondent and you're negotiating, you're putting the application out and you're talking to the borrower, the borrower's going to start, okay, well then you, you you roll changes in the business because you're... You're pitching the borrower initially and getting him on board or on board. And then you go pitch the lender. The lender says, "Yep, we'll do it. The lender says, okay, now you're going to represent us. You're going to present the deal. And you're on the other
1: side of the table. You're unintentionally conflicted. That's right. Yeah. That's it. You're right. That's an odd. It is. It's an odd setup. It is. But I guess the intermediary is superior or at least that's the intention mm-hmm. to a direct relationship because right. there's somewhat, because to keep the lender relationship, you do have to represent their interests very well over a long period of time. That's right. Without comparable, Of course. That. So, but you also have to represent the clients. That's right. Very well, for a long period of time. <laughs> that's right. So you're right. There's an inherent conflict. I hadn't really focused on that. So, that's, right.
2: and the
0: other, and the balancing, there's two other balancing points that you also have to work in is the appraiser. And the attorney. And so the attorney is going to stand with the lender and represent their interests very strongly. And sometimes you try to make a deal, so you're, wait a minute here. And then with the appraiser, you're saying, okay, wait a minute now. Yes. Let's make sure you're right on target
1: here. <laughs> yes, you're, you're absolutely. I remember that. I still remember work for those the issues. So I, uh, yeah, it's. But it is interesting being on the client side at this point. Yes, and you do see the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, an extremely helpful career for me to have had with whatever skill sets or lack thereof that I brought to the table or didn't bring. Well, interesting. And it's the same path your father had too, which is interesting. Yes. You remember that he had of worked course. for Rouse. In, That's right. Uh, and Rouse actually was a predecessor uh, to Columbia Nash. That's
0: right. So, Rouse company.
1: Yes. Yeah. So it ended up being a very, very symmetrical, even, even though unintended, although he, in, in fairness, he did. I had to find my first, job in real estate and you know his network of friends of and course family helped that get that role but you know to my dad's credit if that was an introduction to get in the door was that was the end of it and what i did from there on was mm-hmm. on my own accord
0: so the nyu experience was that more Just to really understand the overall perspective of the industry and really understand, you know, the non-financial pieces, the development side and that kind of piece of it.
1: Yeah, and some of the financial ones, I I had not taken an accounting course. Ah, So there was an accounting course, there was a statistics course. And I can tell you now that I did not enjoy either one of those, but did thankfully pretty well in them. But I enjoyed, really enjoyed the development Course. piece and that I think I got bitten by the bug and New York City of course is what a laboratory oh. to, to learn in and the teachers as you know, John are mostly adjunct. Mm-hmm. so they would come in in a very New York brash kind of way oh, and yeah. say close your books we're going to learn about what I did today mm-hmm. and it would you would sit there riveted because what they had done were the buildings that you and I now inhabit or go visit. And they were talking about the development of these things, and yeah, so you get Larry Silverstein come in there and tell you the World Trade Center, you know, (laughs) literally. uh, The Rose guys had come in, and my legal (laughs) professor was ninety-some odd years old at the time. Imagine that! And he was the gentleman who had introduced rent control legislation in New York City in nineteen forty-two at the conclusion of the World War II. Wow, as ostensibly is a six-month um, emergency measure to get the GIs and everybody back and get housing. And he said it was the single biggest mistake of his life that he created something that ended up having, not, not at the time, at the time it was quite noble because he it was able to get soldiers, veterans, housing, mm-hmm. Levittown and New York City, sure. et cetera but he said that it was literally and if you can look up the logs it called an emergency emergency legislation and that was 70 80 90 years ago at this point so wow. think of, think about that so he'd but that's the kind of thing we would learn at NYU i mean these guys were in the in the game and uh, so i really enjoyed it did you get into the Robert Moses uh,
0: story and all that? We did and, learn about,
1: and, and about and that. the Jane Jacobs battle with her, you know, yes,
0: the whole thing. Yes, yeah, so and my father actually
1: somehow ended up knowing Jane Jacobs. Oh, really? I don't know how, but I actually went and visited her. I believe in Toronto where she really she ultimately retired. And uh, so Jane Jacob, Jane Jacobs' philosophy has actually had quite an intentional or unintentional impact on this company really? that we really believe in. Think that I guess you could call it new urbanism is somewhat of an extrapolation of what she did. Mm-hmm. But I think I fell in love with Greenwich Village. So I understood- Walkability. The, the right. walkability and this mm-hmm. you know retail on the bottom, residential on the top, mm-hmm. life happening- Very, very European. Dense, very European. So I know that there are some pros and cons of her philosophy, perhaps mm-hmm. lack of density being a con. Which mm-hmm. would un- unintentionally create the sprawl, right? But I don't know that any of our philosophies are bulletproof. So I, I think she's at it a lot. Have you read Carol's book about Moses or not? No, I need to. I do haven't that. read that either. I, I want to, to read Power Broker.
0: Yeah, I have yeah. it,
1: and it's a big tome, and I need to. I need to read it.
0: <laughs> not to mention is one on LBJ. Much
1: yeah, <laughs> it's just, just yeah, that's true as well. Huge long. anyway. Yeah. Should we? Do you wanna? <laughs> Girls, what do you think? Pretty cool?
2: Yeah.
1: We're going to So NYU was
0: uh, a formative experience for you then.
1: Yes, I enjoyed it very much. That's great. Although I'm reminded that I I'm glad I do real estate development in DC and work in DC, whereas I was entertained and amused by the professors' And their stories, and it, it's another world yeah. in in terms of the way they comport themselves, the culture. the culture. And it's you know, New Yorkers do get a bad rap that they're not nice people. I think they actually were quite nice underneath 38 layers of gruffness and skepticism. And if you think about New York, you start the day getting on a subway and then you wait in line for coffee and you, you're always pushing and pulling and it's a survival of the fittest mentality so you have to be have somewhat of a defensive approach to life and or offensive i guess i guess it really would be and it just was ultimately as much as i enjoyed it i'm glad that we're headquartered in this dc <laughs> region instead but oh yeah i learned a lot i can tell you if nothing else from watching and learning from these fabulous developers that mm-hmm. were making.
0: Well, you could have gone to Georgetown and you could have gone to locally. Also here, great but the,
1: schools the
0: experience up there might've been,
1: it was just interesting. interesting. The one downside of going to grad school in another city versus the one you work in is my network from graduate school is relatively de minimis. I have a larger network from college and just interestingly, um, I think the people that stayed in New York probably benefited greatly from it. So I think there's, I would now advocate to a lot of our employees that are younger, that are looking at grad school to stay local mm-hmm. so that their peers and professors are people who, I mean, you work with a lot of these people. So, but the idea is that they could get mentorship and
0: sure,
1: um, locally where it's going to last mm-hmm. versus more of a transitory thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So you joined the company is that was it right after?
1: Yeah and four days before 9/11 that, that's, I really yeah I remember that was an odd Wow odd beginning but yes, I joined the company in uh, 2001.
0: So how did that feel when 9/11 hit? I mean you were just leaving New York City right and coming here.
1: Yeah, I had left New York the week before 9/11 and had met my now wife, my wife for the past 20 years. But she worked at American Express, which, as you can visualize, really? is only 100 yards
0: from the, World Trade, from the Center. World
1: Trade Center. And so I remember my first week at work, if not days at work, my mother calling, which was awkward in its own right. My mom was calling me my first day or two at work. I said, what the hell are you calling for? And she had informed me that something had happened. And I immediately went into panic mode because my, she wasn't my fiance yet, but was pretty darn close, and ended up getting her on my wife Robin on the phone, my now wife, and she had was running late to work, which ended up being quite fortuitous. Where was her
0: apartment?
1: Upper East Side, and uh-huh. she had taken the subway by hook and crook because there was no East Side subway, uh-huh. all the way downtown, so it took forever. She finally got there, got up the stairs. Called me and said, is what, what is going on? And it, she thought there was a ticker tape.
0: What time was that?
1: Grade? Nine, late eight something or early well, 847 nine. 847 is when it hit. When it hit. So it was after the first plane had hit right. before the second. Oh my goodness. Because she said, is there a ticker tape thing going on? Oh. Because that's where they hold the ticker tape. Grade. Right. And there was paper everywhere. And she said, the people were not yet running. Because you'll remember after the first plane, yeah, everybody's staring at the thing. Yeah, it's didn't
0: know what it was. Yeah, no one
1: knew. And it, it, the, you'll remember communications that day were totally oh, yeah. gummed up. Completely. So she, we barely got through to each other. And then I had to, I remember sitting on my computer at work, helping her ostensibly map a way to, back, to walk from there all the way back to her apartment without going by a major landmark. Where was she when the second plane hit? 10 blocks north, or 20 blocks north, because we, we I don't think we were on the phone at the time, I certainly don't recall being on the phone at the time, but she was walking north, and we were, I specifically remember, she can't go up Broadway because then she'll go by the uh, Empire State Building, right, or the Chrysler Building, uh-huh. and if, if you look at a map of New York and I'll think through this exercise, there's Grand Central Station, right. Empire State, Chrysler, right. on and on and on and on. And because you'll remember at the time, none of us knew what was next because the Pentagon oh had been hit. right? So then it became uh, the sequence of things happening versus a. anyway, lo- sorry for the digression, but well, pretty- it was just a strange moment in time. And it, at least with my relationship with my wife, ended up putting it into overdrive because she wanted to get the heck out of the city. Mm-hmm. And so my parents had her come down and we stayed on, on the Eastern Shore. My parents had oh, a really? place in St. Michael's for a number of days. And her workplace was essentially half blown up. So they American Express had to ultimately relocate to Parsippany, New Jersey for a year or two. But there was this period of time, weeks and months, where no one knew what the hell. Did she lose colleagues? No, but we knew a bunch of people. Nobody from I don't I don't know if anyone from American Express died. If they did, it would have been on the plaza between the World Trade Center and getting to the American Express building. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, that's incredible. So you got that started. Of course, business was
0: jolted a bit yeah business was
1: jolted i remember watching my father you know i had visualized him as a leader but leaders have to truly be leaders in moments of crisis and i remember the company was a lot smaller and we had some crappy television like one little tv in fact, actually, we didn't have a TV in the office. Somebody had to go get one wow. at Target down the street. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably, brought it back, and we were able to watch it because the internet was barely working, as you'll remember. Right. And I watched how he was handling the crisis and what to do and what not to do, and it was all very confusing. And But that was my first week on the job. <laughs> it was totally bizarre. You didn't have any properties near the Pentagon at that time. No, we had some managed properties downtown, Uh uh, D.C., but not close to the Pentagon itself. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But we were quite nervous, just as everybody was. Sure. And you may recall, I'm sure you do, there was rumors going around that morning in all the confusion that maybe something happened near the, I think, the State Department. Mm -hmm. There was all this sort of misinformation. So whereas... We weren't near the Pentagon. We thought we thought there might our employees might be in some sort of risk, but with no knowledge of what risk even was. It was just so bizarre. It was a wild day, wild day, yeah. crazy day.
0: So, so you started out. What were you an analyst or were you Yeah, I was a
1: uh, what we call here a development associate. I think that word is used in our industry. So, an analyst working in the development department and learning the business as everyone in that world does it's actually one of the greatest jobs there is because you get to work with these senior developers who have been through so much and essentially shadow them and so you get to go to the same meetings and the same so who did you work
0: with initially
1: so at the time i john slidell was in he was either the head of it or had recently been the head of it but he was sort of he was definitively the, the 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 source of how we do things and the source of what a good developer looked like how we model ourselves and John had the propensity to be a very detailed one of these developers that really gets into the weeds mm-hmm. and so he was a great guy to learn from because he was not just delegating things he was in it And he has a good personal style where he was able to work with community groups and really be thoughtful and and deliberate. And John, uh, just for context, John was a founding partner of the company with my father, along along with Rick Mostyn and a gentleman. John introduced me to your father. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I guess that does make sense.
0: Yeah, I met him at a project that I financed
1: in Germantown.
0: He was at the opening party. It was a Winchester Homes project. Excellent. And I met him in 1988, about the same year the company was founded. Yes. And so uh, he said, You gotta come meet Tom. I said, Okay. So my meeting with Tom, first time, he said, John, so what do you do? I said, I'm a mortgage banker. I yes. work for the BFSol company. And he said, Yeah, you, know, uh, you know, it's just too bad that you unfortunately you work there because my best friend <laughs> runs the Columbia National, or oh, at that yeah. point, it was maybe yeah, been the Rouse company. At it was time. Rouse
1: and then Columbia National. Right. But he was, that's right. It was John, that's John Renner. And it right. Right, was very, <laughs> very loyal oh, yeah. to John and his firm.
0: Right. And, but I did get a shot. I tried, let's see, about three times with Ray. Came very close on one financing within an eighth where Allstate beat nationwide on a quote on a mm-hmm. um, Hobbit's Grove, Hobbit's Glen in, in Columbia. I believe this project. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you still own that project. We or... don't,
1: but I remember it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And then the other deal was in downtown Bethesda, the, the theater project. Yes. Yeah, and I public. was bringing equity and I had an equity quote from an institutional investor and Cigna ended up doing
1: it. as I recall. I think yes. Was, I think it was Cigna. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. Yeah. So I tried. Yeah, it's, it's a tough business, right? Yes, it is. It is a tough business. But I think we have made a good business practice out of loyalty to those we've, we've worked with. Yes. And we don't dispense those relationships for better spreads or similarly, even today, we don't, almost never broker debt. We go to a handful of our debt providers who are also credit line providers and also where we put our deposits. And it's very symbiotic. And I will freely admit that I'm not entirely sure if we're getting the, you know, is it the lowest rate you could get? In fact, I'm almost definitively sure it's not, but what we've learned is our partners who we are loyal to are conversely loyal to us. And a, I like to live my life like that. B even self, selfishly in down markets. There are times when, and I can think of several cycles we've been through or that I've been through in my career, where our lenders or and or equity providers have shown up at times when almost no one else is getting things done. And I'll take that any day of the week over, you know, getting a better spread with a no name institution. So I think it's more of a long game mentality.
0: Absolutely. Relationships are so important in our business. I mean, the sooner people learn that the better for their career. I hope they don't
1: because it's really good (laughs) for us. It's, it's an amazing thing. And it's, it's this idea. It's like being married or, or anything in life where the grass, where is the grass is always greener expression. But in reality, you're so much better off tending to the relationships you have versus this, this notion that something better is around the corner. If you could chase that your whole life, and it's very, very unsatisfactory, I imagine.
2: Yeah. Well,
0: the issue in business is that, you know, there are always going to be ups and downs, particularly in our industry. We have such a cyclical, it's not like we have a steady as she goes business climate in real estate. It's never <laughs> been that way. So unless you
1: have deep relationships, it's really hard. That's right, and the best guys out there, the best developers out there, are, are typically those that have real, long-standing relationships. And it's also nice because if you, I use the words um, symbiotic before. If we're able to create wonderful returns for our investors and our lenders, I mean, what a what a great. They'll they'll want to do business with us. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a win win if done if done well. So you started the development side. So
0: did you kind of grow up in that side yeah. of the business?
1: Yes, here? I realized that the the career, at least for the the beauty of the the development world, as you know, is many different types of people could be successful, mm-hmm. and you you can imbue whatever qualities you have in it. And in my case, I was able to remember my creative side and candidly that's probably superior to other sides of of myself and therefore use those skills to develop with my team. I'm using I, but of course, by extension, everyone I worked with really, really creative projects. And at the time you'll remember in the early two thousands is when boutique hotels really came into fruition. Right where everything pre- previously had been a Hyatt or a Marriott and very fine, nice brands, but they weren't decidedly designed forward or cool. And when hotels became cool, it occurred to me and those I worked with that if we could do something similar, but in an apartment space, right. that we could capture, here's an idea, the young people who were going to be our renters versus the stodgy clientele that would have preferred these hotels, more typical so that we we sort of like most things in life it's a bit derivative but in a derivative fashion said well instead of fantasizing about these cool designers that work on these other projects why don't I just hire them the very same people that did those cool hotels and by cool I mean well designed or Mm -hmm. something transformative or innovative and so I was able to use those qualities alongside my team and develop a a number of assets that were decidedly more design centric or more forward thinking. That sounds great and it looks great on a catalog or in a brochure, but what was really great was when people paid 15%, 20% more to live in these places then when you go to sell them, it was particularly rewarding, and I of course don't have a scientific number here, but that a cap rate in theory was lower. Now maybe the cap rate was lower because the NOI was so damn high. But the the idea is they were very desired assets. They were, we've heard the expression, brochure cover assets. There's something an institution would want to have in their portfolio.
0: So how did you measure the, and this is interesting, the design stepping out with the realities of cost and being able to yeah, great question. balance that whole
1: you know equation. Well, the dirty secret of an apartment building is that when you say it's well-designed, in theory, you could be talking about the outside, but in reality, I'm not really sure how many of our renters, I and mean, they care what it looks like. I'm not sure the entirety of the building has to be some edifice to you know, the world's most sophisticated architecture, but it's the amenity space. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about, or think about what the Delta could be between a well-designed amenity versus a poorly designed amenity, let's make up a number. If it was a million dollars to do a poorly designed one and $2 million or even three to do an exceedingly well-designed one amenity space, if you're going to take a $2 million delta, a million dollar delta, and amortize it over a, we're long term holders. So a 5, 10, 15, 20 year cycle, and you had achieved rents, whether because of this or some other quality of 15, 20% higher than the market. I could it's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. Yet it was fodder at the time. I remember being criticized actually by some of my developer friends saying, What the hell are you all doing? This the normal space is 5,000 feet and you all have designed a 10,000 foot amenity or 15,000 if you want to be go totally nuts. And by the way, we extrapolated that to the landscape architecture outside because as a resident, you are living in and outside. So that too became very important. But it, again, the laugh was sort of, we sort of got the last laugh in that saying, okay, well, you may think I overspent, but... It's really not in this. And a seventy-five million-dollar project, an extra million bucks or whatever the heck the number was, really wasn't. So I'm
0: going to bring up another person that I know worked in your division. Sure. He I mean, no longer is with the company. but okay. Steve Trizella, great guy. Did he think the same way you did as far as that kind of innovative, cutting-edge type, you know? Yeah. Process?
1: So Steve, after I ran, I ran our development company ultimately for six or seven years, and had mm-hmm. the. Fortune of working with Steve and others during a very prolific cycle right. post 08,
2: mm-hmm.
1: 08 being terrible, but 09 being a great bottom where we were able to pounce and recover with the help of um, some of our financial friends. But Steve is trained, had, if memory serves me correctly, had an engineering background. I believe he had some architectural background, but was more of an engineer mm-hmm. by thinking. And I was more of a creative by thinking. And it was actually a wonderful partner to have because it was a good check and balance where if you go too nuts, you could gild the lily and create a building that that became more about your ego than it did about the return to your investors. Mm -hmm. But I think I got in his head a little bit and vice versa. And we really helped each other in that he really became... Enthralled with design, and I really became enthralled with doing a building the right way and not going too crazy. And we we had a great fortune of working together. Those are one of those partnerships where you end up working with somebody with different but complementary, end up being very complementary skill set. If you go to our construction company and you ask them what kind of building to build, you, you know, it'd be a box with a door, a door and a couple windows, because. And that's, that's a very engineering perspective because it's easier and it makes more sense, but when you push the envelope, it can be quite fun. And so we had a good time working together. So you're talking physical design and, but another thing that
0: I recognize in Visudo properties that I go to is the experience the physical, not more, I guess the word is ambience more of an ambionic feeling that you get walking in. It's kind of a sense of place. Yes. Something that's, and it's it's more than design. So talk about that a little bit. And that's where your creative element comes in, I think,
1: a little bit. Yeah, so I believe, and I don't know if I this quote is mine or I got it from someone, I think maybe even Mies van der Rohe, but that, well, I think Mies van der Rohe said, or Caboosier CA said, building is a machine for life. I, I look at it and I say, "We're creating a stage set." And think of it this way: If you go to a nice restaurant mm-hmm. with your partner, you probably wear nicer clothes than you would normally to go to bed. Right. The lighting is probably a little bit darker. The candles are a little bit dimmer and more beautiful. The music is beautiful, And wouldn't you know it, your partner that you're sitting across the table from probably looks pretty good the service is better. The quality of the food is better. And then you gladly or not so gladly, but it doesn't bother you. At the end of the night, spend $300. And you say, Oh my goodness, I just spent $300. But for some reason it doesn't bother you. Whereas if I told you to hand me $300 right now, you and I would both get sick. Value is not, I think the word value is often conflated with this idea of being cheap. Value can be something that's going to Walmart can be a value, but going to a fancy restaurant and being treated to a such almost theater-like experience of can be a value. You got a value for your money. You traded your treasure for someone else's. Think of it that way. So if we could by extrapolation say, let's design a building that's a stage set for living. You walk into a Bazoudo property. Candidly, we even cheat this a little, and even those properties we manage for others, I think we've elevated the building by experience alone. Because once you're in the building, how are you treated? What is the environment like, the cleanliness? The Again, what you're paying a lot to live in these places. What experience are you getting? The thing I'll just hit on, and it's
0: an interesting one. When I walk into a Zudo building, the smell hits me right up front. And you have a unique...
1: Scent, yes, we, we do a positive one. <laughs> yes. I hope a unique, and a good one. Yeah, unique. Yeah, so we, we have paid for a proprietary scent, and it is infused for lack of a better word in all of our buildings. And it's really interesting because my 17 <laughs> year old daughter is with me today and doing a little quick internship with us, and I took her into a building uh, we built a project called the astor in college park and the first thing she said when we opened the door was wow this reminds me the smell of this reminds me of your other buildings and she's 17 so i can assure you she's not paying a heck of a lot of attention to what we do or don't do <laughs> yet she knew immediately and that was the first second the door opened and i didn't say anything what she may not have recognized, but I think she did subconsciously, was that I had the right kind of music playing. And then we walked around, and the, st- the building was perfectly clean. Then she said, "I like all the art in here." Okay, remember, she's seventeen, so right. this is the things she's perceiving are real big deals because to get through the filter of a teenage brain right. must be something pretty interesting. And what I said was, what did you know, that we handpicked every piece of art in this building and we worked with an art consultant and we worked, these all have meaning and these all have purpose. And and it's these little things that add up. By the way, when you walk in the Aster, there's a bridge that connects the two buildings, a skywalk, let's call it that. And then underneath of the skywalk would have just been concrete. And I drove by a mural one day on a building in Baltimore, and I called the artists and I said, could you paint the underside of the, of the walkway? Mm-hmm. So now what could have been a very pedestrian, no pun intended, experience, it, a very utilitarian experience is now this piece of art. And that's what you see before you walk in the front door, then you smell the building, then you hear the, the music and you see the art and you can see how excited I'm getting. It's the totality of the experience. Mm-hmm. Therefore, service, the way you treat your customers, or in our case, our residents, becomes the real game. And I think those institutions and private developers that make management decisions based purely on cheapest provider are making a massive error, at least on those buildings where you're charging a lot of rent. In some cases, I'm sure the lowest cost provider is more than adequate. But I would tell you in the class A space, you need an excellent property manager. And there are a number of companies like that. And we hopefully, aspirationally, want to be the best at that game. So let's talk about origins of all this thought process. Sure. I,
0: my sense is, and I'm, of course, interviewed
1: both your dad
0: and Julie. Julie Smith. Julie yeah. Smith. And I met Julie and your father brought her into my, our office when I was a mortgage, a mortgage banker. And this was right at in the early 1990s, right after the crash. Yes,
1: of yes. Course.
0: And that was the growth of your company's property management business. And so you basically took institutional investors that owned a lot of property that they took back not by their choice. Right,
1: unintended. To manage. Right. And,
0: you know, because you had done a good job on a few of them, the, rep, the rumor got out, oh, Buzudo is great at managing properties. And suddenly you. Yes. it just exploded. It did. But Julie brought not just quality service, but she has a, a, a sense about interacting with people, I think, that I don't know many other people have. Yes, yeah. I
1: think you're right. An extraordinary that. person in that regard. Absolutely. And continues to be that person. She is now our, she no longer runs our management company, it's Stephanie Williams does, yeah. but she's our CAO. Runs the cultural components for lack of a better word, or job is far more sophisticated than I'm giving it credit. But technology, marketing, communications, all, all these things that all these essentially support groups that make up our culture. She introduced our employee resource groups, which were now very prolific in our employee resource groups. And we, we'll talk a little bit about our culture, but getting back to your point, she recognized, and, and my father, also, this idea of being humble, a humble sort of servant, I like this servant leadership idea. Mm-hmm. I read the other day, they said, leadership is not a stagnant position. It's a service journey, constant service journey. Wow, what a cool way to describe it. Although I know some leaders that wouldn't describe it that way. And I think if, I've always thought of our management company, and I wasn't here when they started the management business, but what I learned from watching them was by treating people better than maybe they had expected, you were giving them this value, you are giving them this dignity, this... And my father coined this expression, he said, we we create sanctuary. Sanctuary, So instead of just saying, we build apartments, which would be a terrible tagline, (laughs) it was this notion that, sure, shelter is the vehicle by which... This is accomplished, but in reality, it's how are people treated? And sanctuary has this resident quality of safety, home, kindness, respect, dignity, inclusion. It's almost a religious
2: feeling.
1: It has it, it does have that quality to it, doesn't it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's sort of a sanctity in it, right? There's this. Right. So I love this idea. If we can create a place where people feel at home, I mean it doesn't sound like that brilliant of a concept, but so many of my competitors who are excellent in some ways, if not many, many ways, but some of them w- would focus more on the transactional quality of real estate, and they could be making widgets or you know, auto parts just as well. It, it happens to be apartment buildings or units, if you want to break it down even more granularly. We believe in something a little greater than that. Not that. Again, their business model may be as good or better. I, I don't mean to suggest anything negative about that. It's just a different way of viewing things. There's probably a place for both in the world.
0: Well, I mean, you're you're in it for the long game, you know. And most of your investments are long. Yes. You may you may look at it ten years, but it's probably longer. Right. Typically, right? Probably
1: yes. Mostly, I and mean, that's
0: your thought process, and that's you know. I just interviewed. Art Fusillo, I mentioned when we were at break, guy. and he's with Lerner. Lerner has a 200-year plan, right? So,
1: I mean, it's like...
0: Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs>
1: yeah. And I believe it, and I believe they'll accomplish it, whatever it is. I yeah. Mean, it's, Even though Ted Lerner passed away this year. Yes.
0: But, you know, he talked about this whole, and it's a family business. It's the whole family That's feeling. Right. There's a, you know, and Washington has great family businesses when you think about Truly
1: it. Truly There fabulous. are several of them. And lots of different facets. We talked about mortgage yes, banking. Right. We're good friends with Willie Walker. Of course. And of course, his father was of iconic. Yeah. Is iconic. The Folger the, family. No, Cameron know. Pratt and I are. Well, you know what's <laughs> interesting? I've been really lucky that because there are so many fathers, sons, fathers, daughters, etc. I've had the privilege of getting to know a lot of the second generation. There you go. Cameron Pratt and I are very, very close mm-hmm. and trade ideas. I talk to Willie Walker a lot and on and on and on. And it's really amazing. I'm friendly with Kelly Shushan, of course, yeah, from sure. the Shushan Corporation. Right. And there's a whole number of people that are second gen who are equally hardworking equally inspired and could have been ostensibly could have been nerdy well pipes, but their first gen had been such hard workers and and instilled this work ethic and humility. And so I think we're really lucky. It's a neat, you know, I was knocking New York before a little bit. I will tell you the families in New York are fabulous as well. The real estate families. Now they, I may not want to have dinner with them, but they're, um, the work ethic of some of those multi-generational families in New York city is amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. Well, that's
0: a good segue into what I want to talk about because your, your dad told me about a program that you and you and he did. Yes. With, I believe with Harvard university. Yes. Talk about that program and what you learned and why you did it and the whole origin of that situation.
1: We went to a program at, Harvard's executive education program Mm -hmm. where you are taught by professors who are expert in this this particular thing, which was families in business. And the, the construct of the course was that you go with the founder or whoever the CEO was at the time, and not only in theory, family members, but also in theory, partners, because what is so often overlooked or screwed up candidly in succession is so often it used to be the father and the son. I'd, I hope our world has evolved enough that that's not the determining quality it could anymore. Be a God willing, it, it would be an option as well. And, but at the time it was this, the father focuses on the son or whoever the heir is and forgets about all the other partners and everybody else's career path. And then this, this heir gets in, enthroned or put in this position and then they turn around and there's no business. What a terrible business model. So my dad and John Sladell in this case, were really wanting to go up and understand both how we could take care of our family and business, but also how the partners or business partners in our company would feel about it and how their career plan could be excellent as well so that their opportunities weren't truncated since the ostensibly the CEO spot was going to at some point not be theirs. So can there be other paths that are equally interesting? Did Duncan Slidell? Duncan did. So participate in that? yeah, okay. Duncan and I, Duncan and I graduated at the same year. He was at WNL. I was, as I mentioned before, at Colgate mm-hmm. and we were both, he worked more on the finance side and was very good at it. And so it was both of us, our fathers and, and the two sons. Mm-hmm. So it was really great. And so anyway, this I digress. The, the program itself was made up of families who had either done it really well. And then there were some that were really screwed up. And they may be fabulously successful businesses. And I won't mention who they are, but you know some of them. Um, but this function would have been a, uh, um, in the family dynamic mm-hmm. would have been an understatement. And it was tragic to me to see some families who were ripped apart primarily by money, but power, money, jealousy, all the human negative traits that we have, and really manifested by what would, in other words, could have otherwise been a blessing, right? Could There's have been one, a,
0: one family here in Washington is a classic example of that. Yes. I'll just mention the name, the Haft family.:
1: Yes, they they've, right. And, and they had a lot of public falling apart. I mean, how embarrassing. And when you, not only are you fighting, but then you're fighting in a public forum. Yeah. And they've gone their separate ways, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, with success, interestingly, but just... Well, Ron has done well at combined properties. I mean, they keep
0: doing well, but,
1: you know... Yes, yeah. there was some fallout. Oh, yeah. A lot. And even if there wasn't noticeable fallout publicly, what happens around the Thanksgiving day Right. If there is one, anymore. And what my dad and I learned, and I'm sure John and, and, and Duncan in this case, learned was n- none of this is worth it unless you do it right, because I could be the richest man in uh, Babylon. and uh, How did you find out about it? You know, I think the, the Folgers told us about it. Okay. I feel like Bry or somebody told us about it. And... and it was some family in D.C. I'm. I, forgive me for not recalling my father would, but I believe it was Bri. And mm-hmm. I think they had recommended it. And we went to the program and it was it was wonderful. And I've recommended it since to many, many people because you learn not only what to do, but more importantly, perhaps what not to do to really screw things up. And I did it in the infancy of my career. And I candidly felt very embarrassed being there because whereas Notionally, I was heir apparent. I was only 28 or 29 or 30. I didn't know anything about anything. And my father, his partners, it was I was unproven as to whether I would have ultimately been the CEO. So the meeting, the the course from our perspective was not about if he becomes CEO, what is the nature of this? It's how does a father and a son, or any, any I say father and son, any family member work together without screwing it up or screwing up the livelihood of those employees who are non-family members. And now at this point, John is retired. Duncan has a great career at Lincoln. And my dad and I are the sole owners of the company. So if we had not been mindful of our, but I have fabulous partners like Julie Smith and Mike Schlegel and Dan Murphy, who if we had not been mindful, not only via that course, but other planning methods, to have succession that would it was a to your like the learners it was a long term we, we have not come up with a 200-year plan <laughs> I have enough problem making it to Friday but we do have five-year plans that we do and right. we do a three-year plan all the time and we've become a big believer in this so interesting so that did that help
0: you know that I mean when I think about somebody in your, your shoes when you and when you start with a company at whatever you're 25, 26, 28 years old, everyone looks at you. Oh, okay, we know what he's, where he's going. Yeah. And then, but so that it creates this kind of, it makes it tough. I would think, you know, they'll look at you like, okay, you know, I got to be, For I sure. got to treat him differently than, you know, other colleagues. So how, how did you manage that? And did you get counselled at this program about how to? deflect this, and I assume you used the word humility, you probably humbled yourself more than you may would have, would not have had if your father had been running the company to some
1: extent. Yeah, I I, I I think your last point, I agree with, well, I agree with everything you just said, but when you are, when you, when nepotism sounds right. like a, a, a dirty word, maybe it could be, but what are you gonna do with it? And if, so, A, I tried to come to the company with the same or better skill set that anyone would have at that age at that time. And, right. that, and, and I started in the bottom position. That was your dad's idea. It was my dad's idea, straight up, and and his partners. And so when I arrived, I felt confident enough to be a development associate, which is a junior position. So, But I lived in that position without any feeling that I could be better than that because I don't think I could have been. I had to learn. So you do it for a year, you do it for two and learn from great developers. Then you become a developer. Then you learn that for a couple of years and you become a senior developer and so on. And then to your point, if you know, people are looking at you and I would argue they're still looking every day and it does force you, I think if you're a good person and hopefully I am to have humility, to be kinder to be more aware of the fact that people are going to make certain assumptions about you that are, I'm guessing aren't positive, stereotypically. So you have to disprove it immediately and constantly and never forget it. So I would argue that I probably treat our makeup of position, our service managers, which would have been called maintenance people, as well as the highest priced CEO that I know, when I when I'm with them, and it's not because of that I'm trying to prove something. It's because I feel so fortunate to be in the role that I'm in, and I don't think I'm better than those guys. Candidly, the work ethic and the values of some of our uh, uh, hardworking people are superior to that of many many of us. So I, you know, it's having that humility. And then it gives you a little fire in the belly or at least it did for me. And I don't, that fire is like only on simmer at the moment. I'm it, it meaning it will keep going and going and going because I think you always want to show that you weren't given something in reality. You were, you were given an opportunity. You were born on second base. So that's the other thing, the, the men and women that recognize that they were born on second base. And don't pretend they hit a grand slam or a home run. (laughs) You're already better off because you've acknowledged that you started on a step higher than maybe someone else in terms of possibility of reaching a higher goal. But I would argue that the fall off from that step is far greater. That if you screw up, it would be pretty damn visible. But on the flip side, your father had to be recognized that
0: you were in a difficult position. So he he knew that he had to kind of kick you under
1: his wing a little bit and make sure that you had uh, you know at a certain that's right. And way luckily he, about you I've modeled as you would imagine a lot of my behavior after what I grew up with or watched him do as a leader. And he has a very humble style of leadership. Right. right. So that's just how I learned. And not just how I learned, I mean that is how I learned, and that's a very lucky way to have learned. Interestingly, he he took me under the wing and that I was protected and in in go work somewhere else. Here, here are these ideas. These are things you should do. They'll protect you from being a victim of yourself, meaning from being undereducated or overprivileged or whatever the case is. But he never had me work for him. He always had me report to someone else. And I became exceedingly close to his partner, Rick Mostyn, who to, to this day, Rick is recently retired, although he runs our insurance operation at the moment. But I call Rick all the time, all the time. And I ask him for advice and he's become sort of another father figure. A mentor. Oh, definitively. And I think that was either an intended or an unintended thing that happened by not working for my father directly. Directly.
0: I really like working with Rick myself. You know, I walked in his office and I grew up in Detroit and I saw Detroit Tiger's hat on there I said, I like this guy. You
1: know? <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. yeah, Rick is a, he's a brilliant guy, like you, he's extremely smart, but he's also like you, extremely kind and gets along with everybody and it's just he's the real deal. so he he's been a hell of a mentor. That's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. John and John and Rick had a lot of influence in your early career they, Oh those two guys. I learned a ton about development from watching John, and a ton about everything else from Rick, and then watching my dad. I mean, I, I grew up in this lab you
2: grew laboratory.
1: For sure. I mean, saying it out loud, I realize how absurd that is. But I had it'd be like having the world's greatest board at your disposal, right, all the time for free. <laughs> so let's pivot from that. You know, we
0: met. We met when you were either in development or acquisitions at the farm, I think. I remember having lunch with you in Bethesda, discussing a ground lease opportunity. You may remember that meeting. I don't know if you do. do. And we were across the street from CBS Drug, which was the site. Right. And the owner of that site wanted to lease it or wanted to do a ground lease on that site. Right. I actually remember Remember that.
1: Yeah, I do remember this. Great site, Oh, yeah, and it's still a CVS drug. you get getting to a point here because, yeah, it still is a CVS. <laughs> yes. I still covet it. It's, yeah. it's an awesome site. And the,
0: the long-term lease on the store would, would require negotiating with CVS to allow a digital density on the site, not to mention uh, Montgomery County site plan approval, of course, which takes yeah. a long time, as you well know. You quickly realized it would be a tough road and declined. You remember You do. Was your decision
1: almost immediate, or did you give it any detailed analysis at the time? That's a really great question. I remember the lunch and I remember the site because I still love the site a lot. I think to be a developer, you have to be a perennial optimist, but there's a lot of optimists that have also driven off the road. That's (laughs) right. I think sometimes there's the they call it opportunity cost, or it's how much, if you want to wrestle with something for years and years and years, it might be worth it. But if you could concurrently do three or four other things in that same time period, and whereas I don't remember the specificity of why I would have passed on that, you started by saying ground lease. And you'll know, you know, from your mortgage banking career that, you just shot a hole. You just shot me in the heart. I mean, I'd have to go to a lender and talk about who's subordinate to what and what's the duration of the ground lease. And you can do it in New York City. They do it all the time. But it's New York City and it's worth turning yourself into a damn pretzel. Although that site, it might be. It actually... Now I actually want to go look at it because of the density. Yeah. it. I mean... But now what's I now going I'm not in Bethesda now. I know, I know. So now you're making me realize I passed on an extraordinary <laughs> opportunity, which wouldn't be the first time. But I'm guessing I'm guessing not remembering the time. I'm guessing it was a time when we were otherwise prolific and easier things. Right. And that the notion of for example, we developed a project called the Fitzgerald in Baltimore. It's on a ground lease with the University of Maryland, and it took three years or maybe two to negotiate the contract think about that 2 year let's call it 2, two years just in, and it was because the nice people at University of Maryland had very institutional thinking i'm on the development side i had institutional thinking in terms of what our equity would want but it was decidedly not what the school would want and to get to a point where both parties had a win took years hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal cost. We were able to develop a beautiful building. I was able to name it the Fitzgerald after F. Scott Fitzgerald, thus giving my English degree some (laughs) run for its money and we sold it recently and we did well. So you, there can be positive outcomes. But if you asked me today, should I make a business plan about doing public private ventures? I would say probably not a business plan. Maybe we'll do one here or one there. But you know, these are tough considerations. And I know it, you did one in Boston. We're still trying to my finish. My friend Lauren
2: was yes. involved
1: in that. Oh, wonderful! Yes, yes, yeah. Of course, Lauren's a, a wonderful person. We're almost done that project. It's the Quin, in the Quincy, as they would say in yes. Boston. Um, Quincy on in writing, but Quincy if you're if you, if you know anything about anything, right? And uh, that's a great, a great site and a great project. Um, but again, you're dealing with what they call the MBTA up there, which is the public transit agency, and it's not inherently a symmetrical relationship. I don't mean theirs with us; I just meant them with anybody. Like Quimada we'll here, right? They their core competency is transportation. Mine is developing, re- in, in our case, residential real estate. Parking is the, where they overlap and you have to come up with some compromise. And it's just very difficult again, worth it. Sure. But you have to pick and choose your times. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as you were seeing your role, your dad
0: took a family business. Career. Let's now dig into uh, how you've guided the company and how your philosophy differs from your dad and partner's. The firm itself has evolved several times over, over the years, growing from a development and management company into a vertically integrated firm with several profit centers and leading platforms in the multifamily industry. Perhaps describe the company and its functional leadership
1: today. So the company is simply put it's three well, four business lines. It's four business lines. Actually, we recently added a fifth, which is insurance brokerage firm. Okay. But we've stuck to our knitting. It's a development company. We develop, call it three to five deals a year, mostly on, entirely on the East Coast, I should say. We have a construction company that builds about $650 million a year in revenue for 90% of which is for third party, 10 for ourselves, all residential. And we have a property management company, as you know. Uh, We manage 91,000 units with a far larger geographic footprint. I know it's grown a lot. And that is a national business. And lastly, we have a very small for-sale business where, at the moment, we're doing the Ritz-Carlton condos in Chevy Chase. The Ritz-Carlton Residences is the name. But we've done townhomes and small lot singles. Over the years, and they're called Bazudo Homes. And lastly, we have this small new insurance business called Y River, which is just underneath our Bazudo company. And in totality, it's three—a little more than three thousand employees. Again, on a national platform. And what percentage of that is property management? About twenty-five hundred of the three thousand employees. So the vast majority are in property management. It's a in the service business, as you would imagine. They're 5, 10 people per building, and that, that adds up. Pretty you almost big. need to
0: have your own school to teach people, I would think, the culture. You so it's funny like you say
1: that. We have what we call learning and leadership. And it's as it, as it sounds, it's a training and mo- training modules and classes and expectations and procedures and all of these things about how we should be, because I don't want, I'm not just trying to grow. We don't want to be the biggest company. We want to be the best. And in order to be the best, we have to manage the first 90,000 units and the next, with the be- the same level of integrity and of uh, passion and all the things that we do. So every time we grow, you can not only screw up whatever you're doing that's new, but you could screw up the corpus of what got you there, what got you this new thing. So we have to ensure that everything we do, we saw this with Starbucks. They went crazy in growth and then had to retract, essentially, and right-size the business because they, they became too frayed at the edges. They weren't running. The very thing that allowed them to grow, they compromised. And I would argue, I'm not quite sure they got it back. They they shrunk, sort of did better. Certainly in the stock price, they did better. But I'm not sure the experience today in the store is the same as it used to be. Anyway, we, we want to avoid that. So learning, leadership, training, all of these things are critical to ensure that someone is operating at the level of our expectations.
0: In property management, do you ever get called to manage a project or compete for something that all of a sudden... Wait a minute. You don't want to manage this. Do you ever turn down invitations to yes. manage property?
1: Yes, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way because we all have to eat and we all have to survive. And so you take you. But I would rather when you take a property management assignment for an owner that well, certainly I will tell you a non-starter is someone whose ethics aren't aligned with ours. Of course. So we're at, if if there's even a sniff of it. But then it gets into a gray area. If an owner treats my on-site staff poorly, maybe they're a successful owner. I don't really care if they're treating our staff poorly or, God forbid, with some sort of discriminatory or gender issue or anything that was just anathema to my way, our way of thinking, and hopefully everyone's way of thinking, we're out, flat out. I'm out. I will quit on the spot. And candidly, we've done, that's happened before without naming names. The beauty of not wanting to be the biggest is that I don't in theory have to take an opportunity with someone who would compromise any of our value set. Interestingly, we've also chosen not to manage class B or class C. Now I'm not making a philosophical indictment of these B and C, B and C um, properties are desperately needed, plus some in, in this country. And the majority of Americans, that's what the only thing they can afford. Um, 99% of people, right? It's the 1% that's in the luxury space. Uh, but I don't want to make my living having to evict a single mother who is on welfare. <coughs> I just can't do it. I don't want to do it. I can't make I couldn't go to bed at night thinking that that's how I made my livelihood. So we don't. We manage what we call renters by choice. Those people are living in our buildings are choosing to do so. Admittedly, at rents that are likely the top 5% of the market, 10% of the market, but they're not people who are disadvantaged or if you're not doing affordable housing. Well, so that so I'm glad you asked that. That's actually an interesting point. I don't want to just pander to the hoi polloi of the world. I understand. And, and thus believe that everyone idealistically, and this is an idealist statement, deserves the same quality of housing or the dignity of having a safe and clean place to live. So we're really lucky that we've gotten involved and have it for a long time. Doing affordable housing as well. But what we'll do is we'll partner with a nonprofit like Housing Opportunities Commission here locally, or APA, yeah, Montgomery County, APA, or so on and so forth, where we're partnered as the developer. We'll put some skin in the game of our own equity, our expertise, our time, our reputation, but we'll work with a nonprofit whose mission is fabulous and dedicated to whether it's 80% AMI, 60%, 50%, 40%, whatever the heck it is, and provide those people as the very highest level of of housing at their income level that they could conceivably get. The idea being that we have created something special for a different income class with great pride. And we just finished, oh, EYA was our partner, we just built a project called the Laureate at Shady Grove Metro. HOC is the majority owner. UIA and Bizuto are the, let's call it co-GP for lack of a better word. And I'm forgetting the exact percentage, John, but call it 30% or 30 some odd percent is affordable housing in an absolutely stunning norm- normal quote unquote luxury building. And I had the opportunity to attend the grand opening the other night and was able to speak to some of the residents who are there under the, in the affordable units. And they described their experiences, game-changing, life-changing. One of them was a mom with a baby. And I, I called my dad that night on the way home and I said, how lucky are we that we could provide that type of housing, in this case with our partners, for these fabulous people who are otherwise, they just have, don't have the same income as we do. So Another
0: example, I toured with Justin Can- Cannell yes, recently yes. that he's working on in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Yes. And so you delivered, I think the first delivery there was an HOC project, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, we manage, we're we a fee manager for HOC in a building on the periphery of our genesis link. And at the other extreme, you
0: have delivered a Ritz-Carlton condominium project, yeah. yes. which is
2: probably the highest level away.
0: project you've
1: ever developed, It is, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's a fair So and
0: you have, you know-
1: Right, but what's the common, the common threat The common thread is walk in the building that we manage for HOC and see how you're treated, and walk in the Ritz-Carlton and see how you're treated, and I'm going to guess it's pretty damn close. If not, it should be the same. There should be no difference. I genuinely hope there is zero, zero difference. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had a $2 million condo, does it have a wolf stove or whatever these things no. are? Of course right. Or, 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 or affordable order. unit. Right. But you know, it's the, how you're treated, the cleanliness, the safety, the respect, the dignity, the pride it's it's again this really gets into my business philosophy which is you can run a business that is actually doing things that are elevating humanity as part of what you do and it's okay that you're making a profit while you do it and candidly I've heard a quote once that said no profit no purpose so you need your you need the profitability to to then effectuate whatever you're trying to do that's larger than
0: that. Well, let me share a story about, so I interviewed Julie Smith last year, and we I didn't get her picture that day because I usually get a picture of, of my guest. And so I, she said, you live near Chevy Chase, why don't you move? So we met at the Ritz-Carlton marketing office, but I didn't know where it was because it yeah. wasn't on the site at the time. It was actually in 8401 Connecticut, which right? Is the right. office building where I started my career at the salt company. The old ch- yeah, the old- uh, I was cheese. in that building Saw company. Yeah. That's anyway, right. so I went, I couldn't find any, you know, so I went to the the HOC and the, the property manager there, I think he was the head at that time. He walked me physically to the marketing center. Awesome. He didn't te- he told me, he said, no, it's up here, no, 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 I'm going to take you there. He walked me there and, you know, Met with and I met with Julie in the market because I, mean, I didn't know that.
1: That's great. And the, we, we stole that from Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton. If you ask for a restroom in one of those hotels, watch what happens. They don't point. No, they walk you. They there. walk you there. And you're here in my office today, and you and the, you needed to find something, and I walked you to it because that's 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 how you respect somebody. It's not pointing. You can go find it yourself. <laughs> yourself. And it's really genuinely not as meant to be just a sales technique. I mean, sure, a skeptic, the skeptic could say he walked you to the Ritz Carlton. Well, you're a host, right? But you're a host, and right. this is the I visited a property today, and the woman who ran it this her entire PL is this building. So think of it as each individual building is their business,
2: mm-hmm. their
1: reputation, right. You could go online and write a review of any building today. So it's it's the reputation. It's and the company teaches part of our training is that being a good person or a kind person is actually not only a nice thing to do, but expected as being a part of our culture. My point, of
0: course, beyond that was this was the HOC building. This was not one of your high-end luxury buildings. Exactly. And he treated me very specially. Well, thank you for saying that.
2: Yeah.
1: And I wouldn't expect, we don't have certain managers that work in our affordable buildings and certain ones that yeah. work in our luxury. Yeah. They, they are and should be interchangeable. And the, the experience, whether you're paying $7,000 a month at our highest place or $1,500 sub, essentially subsidized, you in no way should notice a difference. Well, Julie talked about what the Ritz-Carlton experience Mm. did a little bit. Yes. She said
0: this was one of the more rigorous training programs that she's seen. Very much. For customer relationships. And she gathered, you know, I mean, she learned a lot from that, which
1: impressed (laughs) me because she's a very special manager of people. Yes. Thank you. They, Marriott, to their credit, who owns ritz carlton created the, the, that brand and the, their expectations, their demands say for what excellence is, not looks what it could look like, but what it's going to be. If you hang their Ritz-Carlton name, this is what it's going to have to be. It's their standards. Their standards look like a telephone book, if you can picture one of those. Yes. And we too have standards and a book. And aspirationally, it should be as long as a telephone book. We're getting there because we're learning from, from people like them. It's really fun in business to your favorite experiences, your favorite retailer, your favorite restaurant, and say, what about that? What, what? My dad the other day called me and he said, you won't believe this. I got a package in the mail from the CEO of American Express. And I you know, I'm thinking, oh, does he know him or is this just some random peer or like, what is he talking about? And why is he impressed? Although CEO of American Express, I'm sure is a spectacular leader. American Express decided that anybody that has been a card member for however many years of this particular kind of card, whatever the heck it was, they sent my dad a, a box with a champ, bottle of champagne and two glasses and a handwritten note, ostensibly from the CEO. Who knows? And it said, thank you for being a car member for 30 years at this whatever the thing was. Mm-hmm. And he was so blown away by that little touch that it occurred to me. I'm not sure what we do as, at Vizzuto to reward or thank someone whose tenure at our properties had been. Maybe they lived there for five years or ten years So you learn these little things by watching excellence in action. And I think as long as you can remain curious and open and not assume you have the playbook on everything. Well, you talked about the
0: Starbucks experience. I also look at the Apple Store and that experience. Isn't that another interesting? I mean, the way retail is done the right way
1: can be a real good learning experience. Excellent learning. And what a game changer that was right yeah i mean they they shifted the paradigm of a retail experience to one i guess shopping is ostensibly enjoyable but they made it really fun you can play with everything they come to you instead of you waiting in line mm-hmm. and, it's, and and the environment was decidedly cool versus stodgy and you're spending two thousand dollars i mean and you don't even really think about it which is just shocking it's just unbelievable yeah so i bought this watch band at an Apple store yeah. last
0: week I guess and I wasn't here it was in South Carolina I didn't yeah. know how much it cost you know I didn't even see, look at the price right you and,
1: they got you hook line and stuff. and it was a lot more than I expected and and what are they paying you right now <laughs> to be their advertising agency zero right. and right. you are what they I've learned this word you are what they call a brand evangelist yeah you were telling me about your watch band that you just overpaid for by the way I'm sure. It probably cost them $2. He probably spent 150. Close. Right. And yet you're telling me about it a week later and they just got a free advertisement. Now I want one. It's brilliant. (laughs) It's the experience. So if you can do that with your business, if Bizudo and and as we've grown nationally, we have a resident that lives in a Boston building and is relocated for work to DC. They, we've had people say many people, I only want to live in a quote unquote, bazudo building. What's funny about that is 90% of what we manage is other people's buildings. Right. But it's the service experience mm-hmm. that in their mind, they don't know who owns or I'm not even sure they care who owns the damn building. It's more about, I was treated this way in Boston. I bought an Apple watch. Now I want to buy an Apple phone or whatever the heck you want to buy. Now I want to live in another Zudo building. Mm-hmm. It's, can you create a brand and we've been really focused on that. How do you build a brand within the apartment industry? Yeah. You remember post post out of Atlanta when they first oh, came sure. out was post known. properties. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you could picture a post apartment back in the day. Mm-hmm. And at the time they were very nice. And but everyone knew what a post Well, Trammell Crow tried to do the same thing. Yes. Related has done a great job with mm-hmm. that. If I say related to you, you probably picture a high end beautiful mm-hmm. building. Remember the chase, all the chases. Yeah. That's, exactly that's when I first came to Washington, the chases absolutely. were involved. So those brand. are brands right. that had a resident quality in your brain that went beyond them having to spend advertising dollars because now it's in your head. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope to do. Hopefully
2: there you go. Yeah.
1: But
0: your names are different on every, all your projects. So, but you do it more just on the reputation. On reputation and on the service. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so. What disciplines have you set in place for risk-taking
1: and decision-making
2: among the team?
1: I have an investment – we've had an investment committee since the beginning of the company, right. so like 35 years standing. Mm-hmm. But the investment committee is staffed with or, or, or populated by the CFO, the CAO, and the COO. And then we have my father and Rick Mostyn are still participatory mm-hmm. in it. So the collection of people have different perspectives and we use it as a decision-making body and we all check each other as to the, you, you almost need, well, I guess you do need a unanimous consent to get something through. You would imagine before something comes through, it's largely socialized. And the C Mike Schlegel, who is very much my right hand, is my COO. All of the line businesses, our management, construction, and development companies report to Mike. So he's got his pulse on each business line, and then we have various checks and balances in in addition to that. And then we report to one another with all the these are people that run these divisions are partners in the company and share in the profitability of each other's divisions. So it encourages ideally what I call one bizudo, which is this idea that if you run the construction company, you may mention to the client, hey, who's going to manage your building when it's done? You should meet Stephanie Williams and, and so on and so forth. The idea being that we're a flywheel of opportunities if we work together and you're not bonused or incented to only do your one thing well while your brother or sister is failing. So we, I believe we have adequate uh, or exceptional risk. And we're also risk management. We're also not a very risky company. We've been decidedly conservative in our thinking. And sure, do you miss some of the grand slams? If you're a little conservative, yeah, you, sh- you sure do. But you know what you also miss? Strikeouts. <laughs> so, we, so I'd rather be hitting one single doubles, triples every time than taking disproportionate risk that would put our investors or trusted partners in a compromised position. So we've all seen developers who have taken enormous, some, some of the, take- we, we take a lot of risk in the very nature of our business, but we don't need to do some crazy idea just to, to fulfill some ego thing.
0: So despite the capital markets, which are very difficult today, probably is, today, yeah. as difficult as they've been since probably the early 90s, yes. arguably. right. But putting that aside, what would entreat you to a new development deal? I mean, what characteristics do you look for in a site
1: or an opportunity to go all in? Irrespective of uh, macroeconomic client, th- this is something I, my, I learned from my dad. He calls it AV, access, visibility, and environment should be the three qualities that any site has. Pretty ob- It seems obvious, but shockingly ignored by so many, and I'm sure ourselves too on occasion, If you can find a site that is at the confluence of those three things, or if it only has two qualities but not the third, I'm not sure it's gonna win. So if you have a beautiful environment and extremely visible, but you can't get to it, there's no access, it doesn't work. I don't care how beautiful it is. So what's challenging in today's markets market is that I could find something with all of those qualities and it's not financeable. Flat out, it's just not. And that's true of my entire sector in the multifamily industry right now. The returns, all the inputs, whether interest rates or hard costs or anything that inflation is... Well, it drives land down to the point where it could work, but is the seller going to be willing to do that? Yes. And one of the interesting things we've seen land is a residual, right? So land in theory, but land can't go below zero right now. You could give me free land and deals don't underwrite. The land is no longer a large enough portion. Is it of the numerator? Yeah. I was an English major, so you'll have to work with me here, but the land is no longer a big enough component to move the needle. So even if you said your land's worth 50 a, a unit, I say it's worth zero. Even at zero, the deal may not underwrite. So you're at a the, the the underwriting right now is essentially broken until some variable, primarily, in my opinion, interest rates and/or cost combined, or rent growth, which doesn't appear to be you couldn't move fast enough to offset those two bits. Therefore, today I will still look for sites and we are working on projects right now. But we're working on them knowing that we're going to take pre-development risk without the certainty of transaction at the end. I am pretty damn certain that that the worm will turn. And at some point, I'd rather be at the front of the line with ready-to-go projects than the back of the line waiting for things to get better and then starting to look. You won't take a site down without
0: just saying, we're going to land bank that. We're not even going to start working on, on entitlements. You wouldn't bank land at this
1: point. I, I think we would bank land if there was some sort of covered land play. So there was some current. So the CVS deal on Yes, I need you to reintroduce <laughs> me to that guy. I'm ready to. I'm ready to go on that deal. CVS, for example, would be a, a great example. Yeah, but no, we would not close on land without building permits and entitlements. And right now, you wouldn't get a building permit because there's no equity and there's very little debt if any and even if there was i think we have the availability of those two things i don't think i want to pay for 7% debt do force the issue there is right what you're saying so you design 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 you spend right. development dollars right we're very fortunate that as a company with a, a long history and financial wherewithal we within reason can pursue projects and work on the pre-development of those deals Mm -hmm. without certainty of transaction, but with the presumption that at some point soon, sooner than later, we'll be able to get them done. Some smaller companies don't have that ability. So there, I think is close to a cliff event of new starts in 23, certainly second half of 23, probably first half of 24. We we saw an article the other day about a developer, it was Tishman Spire, a great developer, that was starting a project, the, the one in... Maza Gallery. In Maz gallery. And we sent it around the whole office because we couldn't believe somebody was actually starting a project. They got their financing. Right, but who cares? This is what hundreds of those should have happened on a daily basis two years ago. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have sent an article around to each other going, What the hell is going on? And we pulled our underwriting out because we had chased the site and we can't figure out for the life of us, how they got the underwriting to work. I'm sure they did. They're a fabulous company. So God bless.
0: Well, what's interesting. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but have you seen their project in Noma or not Noma, Mm -hmm. but near the ballpark called the crossing?
1: Yes. Yes. Oh
0: my God. I have not seen an amenity package like that on any multi spectacular. Never. Nothing. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's way over the top in my
2: opinion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see because there is, maybe it's maybe multifamily is similar to the office space uh, market right now where there's a flight to quality. I don't think it's as profound as that because in the office world, there's a finite number of people that want to look for space and the residential it's, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of product, And there's a lot of different income levels. So, but you don't lock people
0: in for 10 to 15 years, either like big law firms in the city, which you can invest knowing that you've got that stability of income. In the multifamily space, you're always turning tenants. So
1: yeah, every 12 months or every 24 months. Yeah. Right. And now there's even more, there's some new business lines with shorter duration rental periods. So there's even shorter duration. Sure. Yeah. But,
0: you know, in your space, because of the ambiance you create and the whole environment, correct? Right. people will say, OK, I, I'm gonna, I'm up for renewal, but I love it
1: here. I'm going to stay. That's just, the goal. It's it, your current resident is your best resident. I mean, it's far superior than reletting. And e- even if you believe there's going to be a market premium, I think it's always worth keeping your customers yeah. in place and happy.
0: So we started talking about the market. I'm going to get into the market a little bit more. Uh, the multifamily business is evolving due to several factors, including work from home, amenity wars, the capital markets, the affordable housing crisis, among others. Describe some of the innovations that you believe have had the greatest impact in both developing and operating properties. What has happened, happening today, that has the most impact on the current business in your mind?
1: I think there's a bit of cause and effect. I think what we've learned is that from the pandemic on, people were working. Well, obviously the pandemic was, was the catalyst, but a, an apartment building previously had been used. If you were one of my residents, you would have left at 7 a.m. to go to work and you would have come home at 6. Right. Thus, the building would be almost completely empty. You'd have a random nurse or a doctor or somebody that worked at night that would be there during the day maybe a dog walker here and here or there are some sort of service people. Mm-hmm. But the building was largely vacant during the day. And now you have, I don't know, the majority, but a lot of people working. I can assure you on a Monday or a Friday and up until a year ago, probably more days than that. Half, of, half the half oh, billing is full yeah. or some variant. I don't know. You can see that with utility usage, right? Yes. 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 So our buildings, our, my industry, not just bazooka, are getting hammered. My staff is getting hammered. You are now operating something that is alive 24-7. It's like a hotel. Totally like a hotel. What's the difference between an apartment project and a hotel? Staff count. A hotel has more staff than you could ever imagine in your life. A hotel, an apartment building is run on a relatively limited staff. Even if generous, it's still not what a hotel does. So, cause and effect, what have we done? Well, A, on new developments, you design things that are more, obviously, more responsive to a work from home. So, more amenity spaces that are used. Uh, We were walking through the Aster today, as I mentioned, and my daughter pointed out there was a sign that said study room. And she said, What's that? Could I do my work in there? I said, yeah, you could. This is right next to the University of Maryland. I said, yeah, you could do your work in there. And it, it was intended that way. And it had a sliding door and a phone and a TV and a sure. printer and all the things you need. But really all it was was a quiet space of your own. Now, you would have thought that was your apartment. You know, but if you're in your apartment every damn day, all the time, it's it's not social. It's not that enjoyable. So you want to come down and be, mm-hmm. they, they call that alone together. Yep. I want to be alone, but together. I need you two feet away saying nothing, but I want to be near you. Mm
2: -hmm. It's
1: just human nature. Mm -hmm. And so our buildings, in in short, John, our buildings are being designed to accommodate a a different type of using of the building that, I said, it's it's a stage set for life. Well, now life includes being there and working from it. It's just a different way to utilize the building. Technology is the obvious answer. People have developed absolutely bizarre hours, whether due to the pandemic or technology itself, I'm not sure which came first, that you may want to lease an apartment at nine at night. Well, my staff leaves at five. Well, I want to lease an apartment. You lease an apartment, that's a $30,000 a year transaction. I better find a way for the cash register to be open and for it to be convenient to you. So there's Mobile tours, virtual tours, and Mm -hmm. self-guided tours, and you know, it's technology should, at its best, reduce the friction points from a customer, and 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 that what they're purchasing or using, and if they can give you back time, money, convenience, these are the things that we're using, and my entire industry is using. So, do you think ChatGPT could? Do your releases for you. I wanna I wanna <laughs> laugh. I wanna laugh with you, but I'm afraid I'm gonna cry because <laughs> whatever I say is gonna sound stupid in a week because technology is moving so quickly. So quickly. And if you wrote right now a bazoodo, if you go on the website and chat with us about an apartment, you're chatting with a computer. We named her, I get Ivy is her name. Just like the On That's why we named it, that's why we <laughs> named it Ivy. And we had a resident recently, our prospective resident come in and say, I want to meet Ivy because she's amazing. And that's when my heart dropped because I thought, well, okay, A, we succeeded. We got a lead converted into a lease. We pleased the customer. They wanted to meet Ivy because she had been so fabulous. But then I had to tell, we had to tell her that Ivy is a computer and it's just bizarre. So I want to tell you that AI or chat GPT or some variant of them is not going to completely change everything, but I believe it will completely change everything. That being said, I think high touch, I think I stole this from Julie Smith, high touch, we don't think we'll ever replace high tech. Where I, what I do think is changing is that there will be some variant in between. So I used to order food at a fast casual mm-hmm. place from an employee or Starbucks and enjoy talking to them. Now I enjoy not talking to them. Now I enjoy going in, mobile ordering ahead and picking it up on the counter because I value five minutes or 15 minutes more than I did the really just top, you know, mm-hmm. small possible talk. Small talk right. Now, if I was spending $4,000 a month, or if I was in an affordable unit and 1,000 and everything in the world to me, I would want to be able to walk down to the lobby and say, my package is missing. Can you help me find it? Or I've had a bad day. Can I just talk to you about it? Or, you know, just empathy and compassion and all of these things that human beings can do at some point I'm sure it'll intertwine, which is terrifying, but so we're on a wild ride. And I think this is as interesting or more interesting than the internet. Oh, and It will be infinitely transformative. I can't even wrap my head around it. I'll get back to you.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I've been in the industry uh, since 1979. So it's at 40, 44 years. Yes. Since. The changes that I've seen in those 44 years I mean, it's crazy. when I started, you know, we had four function calculators. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. All right. I thought I was advanced. I had a terminal, HP.
0: you know, that did analysis for equity. You know, if we, if we were doing a joint venture, I was at Prudential I mean, looking at joint ventures. So we had to put all these things in a terminal and it would go to corporate and crank it a big computer and then come back and spit out the, the results. I had a one pager to analyze a loan and I do it all by hand. You know, and I do all the underwriting by hand and all the debt service coverage, all of these you can force four function calculations. Yes. No computer, nothing. Right. And you fast forward to today and what's happened. Oh. And yet, put yourself 40 years in hence. Your children, your grandchildren.
2: It, it, what would
1: that be like? I have no idea. And I'd be lying to you if I said I did. It's, fat, it, it's exciting or terrifying. I'm choosing the exciting version of events, but dot, dot, dot. I mean, humans have a strange, we have, we have both the ability to create the Sistine Chapel and the nuclear bomb. I mean, it, it's, it'll be interesting to say where, <laughs> where, where humanity ends up with this, but one would hope that these tools are used as tools and to create beautiful things or meaningful things or cures or just a superior way of being environmentally, et cetera. But we'll, we'll see, it's, it's crazy, really exciting though. I'm actually really fascinated.
0: Integrating services is interesting too. I mean, you, you talked about some of the things that you, you're doing now and what amenities of buildings, but there are things like life care, for instance, You know, health. Right. You could integrate that in your residential experience, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Not right. only in the amenities,
1: but also in the units. That's right. There, I'm reading a book right now <laughs> about trends to look for in the future, or that are here now, or on their way, or something like that. And one of them was talking about—I'm forgetting the word—but it was how a building has health qualities to right. it, and that—and we've already started, of course, in our industry with years and years ago with lead mm-hmm. or variants of lead. But it's one thing to say your building is relatively healthier than the building next door. That's lead. It's another to say my building will make you healthier. Think about that. So I was went to book a hotel the other day in New York City, and the Equinox Equinox Hotel mm-hmm. in Hudson Yards has the rooms permanently—I don't know—permanently. I'm sure you could change it, but the ambient temperature is 66 or seven, which is apparently the perfect sleeping temperature. So if you stay there, they're already saying, we've already taken this into consideration and your sleep in our hotel is going to be superior to that of another hotel. So I could spend the same God only knows what amount of money at their hotel. Maybe a dumb example because you could turn the temperature down in your unit. But my point is they've actually, they're marketing that they are making you healthier by being in their space. And I think that's the next paradigm shift in our industry. It's not here yet, but it's getting there. Well, I think that the furniture
0: will adapt to people. So hey, let's just say you had an artificial hip or some other thing that you, and they know that in advance that so you get yes. a certain kind of mattress that you're going to be in your bed. I mean, just yeah. you can just go on and
1: on with all these different. Well, it's the services. same idea. It's a service or a product that is either keeping you healthy or making you healthier. And by the way, the opposite is true. If you go to the projects that were built in the 50s and 60s, the health, and this has been studied, the health of the children in these environments, mental or physical, is inferior to those that have lived in superior housing and housing environments. So your physical environment can have a detrimental, forget the positive effect, can have a detrimental effect. And if you don't believe me, go sit in a windowless room in a basement somewhere and tell me how you feel. Well,
0: not only that, but I think,
1: believe it or not, and
0: this goes back to, unfortunately, the evil thinking. Perhaps some people on purpose, you know, put people in basically in prisons to some extent. Yes, from a prejudiced standpoint. So it's yes. unfortunate
1: that slum lords and people like that did it on purpose absolutely horrific so i'm hoping that as we evolve as humans and technology is a tool that we will learn how to take care of one another in a superior fashion absolutely so we talked about changes that,
0: i mean i wanted to use and we haven't used the word although you haven't used it in an analogy because of the ritz-carlton but what's your opinion of the what i call the hotelization of residential not only residential but office properties I mean I see it across the board and the the rationale is why be here I mean,
2: you know, the question
0: you have to ask yourself if you're building anything in real estate it might it's the first question why should someone be here right right right, right. is that don't you think that's a fundamental uh, 100%, question 100%
1: yeah so how do you answer that question? So is your, is your, just so I understand the question is your question, you're talking about duration, duration? No, just to be there. What, what yeah. draws me to this location? Oh, right. sure. During the pandemic, there was a lot, there was a narrative of cities are bad. Suburbs are good because
2: mm-hmm.
1: density and proximate nature to other human beings was bad, but we'll forget the cities have evolved over thousands of years for safety, ironically, for safety, because right. being around one another is superior, or safer than being, right. you feel so alone. Much <laughs> right. other people. Right, and that's the evolution of cities. So there was a narrative, the cities were bad, the suburbs were good. Then there, there's a current narrative that's a political one that liberal cities are bad, Blue, blue's bad, red is good in terms of safety. So San Francisco, bad. Orlando good. I don't know if any of those things are true, but that's a narrative and I don't certainly won't go into politics. But I'm more of a believer, I think to study human behavior. Safety is always tantamount. So you do have to have a safe environment, no matter what. Cleanliness, dignity, all the things that make us human are the most important. I think you could live with those qualities in a suburb. I think you could live in those with those qualities in a city. I don't think it's quite as cutesy as it's being made on television of, northern city is bad, southern city is good. Well, what? Since when? It's, it, there, there are these trendy narratives. At the end of the day, I think we want to be in those types of places I've described. We want to be around action and life and human beings. We want to procreate so that we can evolve our species. It's your genetic predisposition. So not to sound crass, but you want to be in a place where you could meet other like-minded human beings Or, or partners, even if you're not interested in procreation, if just companionship. I wanna be in a place with like-minded human beings where I can find a partner of some sort or another to spend my time. So if we can build in places like that or create places where people wanna live, you can Hudson Yards, when I went to NYU, it was a rail yard and was a disaster. You wouldn't wanna go near it. Related did a good good job, great job, making people wanna live there. But what did they put there that makes people wanna live there? And it's art, restaurants, Beautiful residential parks, you know, all of the above. It's a playbook right out of urban planning, beautifully done. So, yeah, those are the things I believe.
0: But my point also goes into what's going on in the office building sector right
1: now. Yes.
0: So, if you're building an office building, and God help anybody that is, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. Unless there's a tenant standing there with a 15 year lease saying, I want it. You know, you know. How are you creating the reason to be?
1: You're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and you're hoping it sticks. You're saying my building is the healthiest. My building is the in downtown Bethesda near the restaurants. My building is. that goes beyond the real estate. That also goes to the, to the company, to the to the you know. Yes. I think what's happening in the office space is there's a flight to quality to quality. So we're, we're sitting here in a suburban office building in Greenbelt, Maryland, very nice building, but in a, you know, office park with very little retail near it. And our lease is up in a few years and we are trying to decide whether to stay here or to go somewhere else. If we were to go somewhere else, I would imagine only wanting to go to the nicest place we could afford near the best retail we could get, and have a quality of life. If we stay here, I want to make sure that our environment in the the office itself gives my employees the very best environment they could possibly have. So there is an extreme flight to quality. Oh, and do I need to accomplish it in the same amount of space? And the answer is absolutely no. So we have 100,000 feet here. In a very decidedly 10-year-old building, meaning a building that could have been designed 10 years ago on the interior for a different time. Post-COVID, I could probably use half the space. And so if we stay here, we're very likely to compress uh, the, yeah, the amount of square footage so that I have more density, everybody on top of each other in a comfortable way, but Metaphorically on top of each other versus I need space. I need a giant office. I need a this. I need a that. I'd rather just have us all together. So there, there's an extreme flight to quality in the, in the office space uh, due to lack of uh, demand. Yeah. So again, let me get back to where are these
0: people? Oh, well, they're, a they're in my player. apartments. There you are. Or somebody else's or, or, in, a home. Home. or in homes. Yeah. Right. Or, they're sitting in Starbucks, maybe, or definitely, or at some other temporary place. Yeah, it's probably a good business model mobile, there too. Right, just mobile around. So I, I'm just, I think the implications of the, the pandemic, you know, of course, this these trends were happening
1: before that, but just you know, the pedal hit the metal when that happened. You know. Yeah, we were sort of thought of it meaning that there was a transitory quality, a limited space that you need at a limited duration. But obviously, they had their own issues. But yeah, this is a strange time. And I think once the horse is out of the barn, it's pretty hard to stuff it back in. So we've, been, we've asked our employees to come back three days a week. And I can't imagine how well it would go. I know it wouldn't go well if I added a fourth or a fifth. Certainly, a fit or like you say, you got to be here every Friday. Let's say, yeah, I, I don't. See, I would be a, a significant competitive disadvantage to my um, excellent competitors, and that's not a good in this no. labor market. That's not a great idea. No. So, where do you see you know, playing off into
0: a bigger spectrum? Where do you see the future of the DC real estate markets? Uh, will Amazon HQ2? and other tech company expansions in the region over time have an impact? Has the pandemic's impact created secular changes in
1: why? In Washington. I think the answer, (laughs) this will sound like a hedge, but it's a little bit of both. I'm not sure Amazon as an example would have had the profound impact that I believed that it would have when I heard about it the first time. So pre-pandemic, I said, let's buy every damn site proximate to Amazon's new headquarters, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm not so sure. I think it will have some effect. First of all, I'm long-term extraordinarily bullish on D.C. And by D.C., D.C. MSA, so suburban Maryland, et cetera. And I am because of all the reasons you would think. The multitude, in addition to the federal government, the multitude of sectors and interests, the location, access. It's extraordinary place to live. The middle of the East Coast. I mean, think about that. We're literally in the middle of everything. So that's exciting. And therefore I'm bullish. I appreciate that the Amazons of the world are here because even if their employees are working in one of my apartment buildings, they're still working for Amazon. And I don't totally believe for a hot minute during the pandemic, there was this narrative being pushed that you could hire anybody anywhere. They could live in Des Moines and work for Amazon in Seattle. That's probably true to some degree, but once we all started coming back to the office and even the younger people recognized the value of interpersonal human interaction. So I think we'll revert more towards that old norm, but, it will never be completely the same. So I'm hedging my answer. Long-term bullish due to the diversity of business types. So that's
0: regional. Let's go a little okay. more narrow to
1: let's say Northern Virginia, DC and suburban Maryland. Winners and losers. So CBD, downtown DC. Okay, you're 22. You get a job on K Street. Pretty awesome. You're making 120 grand. That's, that's pretty amazing. Or more, more today. Or more today, which is just breathtaking. Some of these attorneys are starting at 175. Okay, so that's crazy. So, okay. So, all right. Well, before you would rent from me or Grey Star or someone else that's good, and, and you would live. Here's a great idea. Live a block from where you work. How awesome is that? You could walk and there were restaurants everywhere. Well, now what happens if you really like Arlington (laughs) because there are bars there and people to meet and things to do and more restaurants or whatever the heck it is that you're into a lot more social. Yeah. Why not live there? And then come in. You only have to come in now two days a week, maybe three. Some offices I don't even know what they're doing, so maybe not even. So why live in the CBD? Okay, well, now that you're not living there and I'm now now I'm the guy that owns the K Street um, lobbying firm and my lease is up. Yeah. Should I renew it a place where no one wants to be? Or should I move my damn office to Arlington where you live? <laughs> Probably move to Arlington. So when we're as we're looking at office space, we're looking, Anywhere from Columbia around the Meriwether District to the North Bethesda, like a Pike and Rose type location, to Bethesda. But all Bethesda is kind of like a made up CBD, isn't it? It's just closer to denser It's beautiful. closer than it's ever been. Yeah. And it's really fun. If you go out to lunch there, you enjoy it. You see a million people, you get a million restaurants, a million stores. Like you and I did recently. I ran into you at a restaurant in Bethesda on Woodmont
2: right
1: and it was happenstance and you said oh maybe I should talk to you for an interview you said oh I miss talking to you and it's just mm-hmm. running into you. if I was in the CBD right now I'd be all alone in the building on Farragut Square wondering where everybody went mm-hmm. and that to me the happenstance running into people is really what matters so winners and losers so some places randomly will win in a huge way North Bethesda or as I would call it, Rockville. So if somebody brought you a study in Georgetown that was Ooh, that's a curveball you just threw at <laughs> me. Because yeah. Georgetown still has yeah. is still Georgetown. Right. Now maybe it's not the Georgetown it was that you and I remember, but it's still pretty wonderful and architecturally beautiful and cool. So Georgetown, yes, by maybe by American or one of the you know, there's a couple neighborhoods that you'd say. The ballpark right now is was and maybe still is the hottest. Area yes, H Street was right. pretty amazing, right? And then Noma. Noma was pretty interesting. Yeah, Noma will be an interesting one to watch. Yes, because it's on the periphery of the central mm-hmm. business district. Now it's created a very nice neighborhood. And there's some beautiful buildings, and we manage a number of them that are beautiful. Yeah, I think Noma will be good. But would you build a new building in Noma? I don't know. I think there's too much already there,
0: frankly. And I think there's too much in the ballpark area right now as well, probably. It would be interesting. But you look at, you know, there's an article in the Washington Business Journal, I don't know, this week, last week. Northern Virginia, from a job growth standpoint, is just head and shoulders. Yeah, above you know, Maryland and Virginia, Maryland
1: and D.C. It's interesting.
0: In a, and there's no clouds on the horizon from that standpoint based on what's going on with, you know, data centers
1: and, you know, the whole data. Yeah, there's some exciting things happening there. You know, we built a project called Aperture on on the silver line and it's exceeded our expectations. Comstock has done a great job all around us. That's certainly helped because they've only is this in Reston or in Loud? Well, sorry, this is in Reston. Reston, okay. Yeah, but same notion, right? It's it's you're you're working where you live, yet you're in a suburban environment, suburban, suburban, whatever the word exurban, whatever it is. But yeah, the world's changing. But I'm not one to really sit around and be upset about this. This is exciting because if you can, what do they say? Put yourself in front of, oppor- figure out what opportunities and position yourself right in the middle of where it's coming at you and you'll, you'll win. So there are a lot of people running around saying, oh, it's not the same as it ever was. Great. What's next? If I can figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is where the magic is. And I think there's a lot of opportunity At the end of the day though, we're still human beings. And I've already mentioned why I think people like to be around one another. That's not changing. There might be different ways we interact or meet or communicate, Zoom or virtual or whatever the hell happens, but we're still driven by primarily many of the same things that someone 3,000 years ago would be. It was fascinating. So
0: when you interview people for your company, what characteristics do you look for in young professionals?
1: Curiosity, humility, kindness is probably the number one. I probably should have started with that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My father always says you can hire. You should only hire nice people because you can teach them any skill. That's in his book. It isn't. Thank you. Thank you for having read, read that. But you can't teach a skilled person to be nice if they're not nice. Like that, that that's just right. left the port, you know, mm-hmm. and we have valued interpersonal relationships, human and inte- uh, emotional intelligence, or these are things that I value greatly as a leader of our organization. We have found out two days ago, we were Washington post top workplace. One of the top workplaces for the eighth straight year. And that's voted on by your employees to me that's as good as it gets because if they believe it's a great place to work then you've created or they've created a culture that is worth staying here or coming here Mm -hmm. and that is business is hard enough (laughs) the world is crazy there's a macroeconomic things raining down on you all the time or geopolitical But we're going to head into any of these things, good times or bads, with a corpus or or group here that is exceptionally good people. So at worst, we have a good reputation. At best, we have a good reputation and we've also made money. And I believe one influences the other. I think if we behave the way that I think we do, that partners will want to work with us again. Residents will want to stay longer with us or come to us and so on and so forth. That's our value proposition and in a severely commoditized business.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Shifting
0: to your personal philosophy, Toby, when you were fully engaged in multiple markets, how did you see the balance among family, business, and giving back? Anything
1: you'd like to share? I remember there was a Harvard Business School, or, or, or the, the magazine. Um, Harvard Business Review Review and it had a photo of an elephant standing on a uh, ball and it said work-life balance and it was something like truth or myth Or <laughs> and when you open the magazine and you read it it says it's total BS and they were far more eloquent in their description I am involved with so many things and I love them all <laughs> My family being number one, the company being number two, I have other interests like Colgate University and my music that I enjoy. I play in a band while still, still, yeah, I have a band that plays on the weekend. And, but to me, life is to be lived. I'm, I'm completely convinced. Well, it's obvious. We have a very finite existence and I want to do as much as humanly possible. Look, we all struggle to find work-life balance. I love my work and I love my life. So I don't necessarily see them as competing. I just, I I do struggle like everyone with not enough hours in the day. And the only thing I've been able to do to hack that is I wake up extremely early in the morning every day to get an hour or two jump on everybody else. But that alone doesn't solve the, the, the days of the week or the hours of the day. So It's a struggle, but I think the more mature I get or more tenured in my career, I'm learning to delegate, to rely on others and my amazing partners, and we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. And I have to assume your family is really a high priority
0: for you as well. Family
1: is a massive number one priority for me. I'm extremely close to my wife and children. I have three children, and... I am exceedingly participatory in their life. I take one to carpool every single day. I go to every game known to man. And, you know, do you miss some things? Yes, but I hope I make have made up for them in other ways. But that, that of course is a constant mm-hmm.
0: uh, struggle. So since taking on a CEO role, are there any outside interests that you've taken a larger role in your life? You just mentioned Col- Colgate
1: that you're doing that? Anything
0: else that you're doing that's?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to give back as much as I can. with respect to my time, Colgate University is definitely a, a major priority in my life. I recently joined the Board of Shock Trauma at University of Maryland in the hopes of giving back to the community I live in, which is Baltimore. And then my wife and I, as you would imagine, do some private things philanthropically. And my my hope is that, but even during the day, my business day, are my creating opportunities for people. We have a workforce of three thousand people. That's a lot of families. That's a lot of opportunity. And I am hoping that many of those people are people that feel like this is a safe, warm, good, and family environment, and that. We have immigrants that work here, we have people of all different backgrounds. And that's very special to me because that alone is in theory giving back. You're creating a platform and then this group is just helping to amplify it. So it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling mission. Talk about the RISE program. Yeah, we created, it, it, we've always given charitably and the bigger the company got or is getting, the more extensively we're giving. But then we realized that sitting around an investment committee with just the principals deciding where to write a check is not, whereas it's nice, it's not that perhaps meaningful to the employees. So we decided to flip it on its head and have the employees lead the charitable giving efforts and decide which initiatives we should give to. Now, admittedly, we still decide as an investment committee on some smaller things, but our, we created a program called Rise by Visuto, which is an employee-led a full time employee, a woman who's running it. And we create initiatives where you can participate not only with financially, but with your time. So, for example, this week there's an event on Thursday. And if you wanted to sign up, it's at a Boys and Girls Club. And you could go and attend and describe a number of hours of your time. You could just, we'll give you off work to go do those things. And I believe that business can be a profound force for good in the community. And if I can harness not only our company's great people, but our residents, we have over 150,000 people living in our buildings. And if we're able to tap into that, leverage their resources or time and ours, that's what a good company, in my opinion, does. Is this in so. each year your properties you have this or? Is so RISE is? is just a corporate oh, initiative. A corporate. Corporate. But what RISE may do, illustrative, let's use Ukraine as an example. When the war started, we were able to, with the permission of the owners we manage for, go to all of our residents and every building we manage and say, Our RISE campaign is going, created a fund and you can contribute. And so we were able to leverage, the employees wanted to do something, we were able to leverage it by the financial resources of our re- or in that case of our residents but it could be something Rise could say hey in Baltimore we're going to do an event and if you're a resident and you've always wanted to give your charitable time to somebody feel free to join us so you're able to leverage it so it's both an internal and external thing but it's harnessing the power of who we are and hopefully that will become bigger and bigger I can assure that's you great. that our the budget allocated to that is growing that's a very cool one. Very cool.
0: So, what lessons would you share, both in career planning and in business performance, to the young leaders and within the listening audience?
1: I think it sounds a bit cliche, but authenticity is re- rewarded a lot in life. And if it's not rewarded, it's at least it's yourself, and you're doing something that is meaningful to you and the way you want to do it. I remember the Steve Jobs idea where he said one day you'll wake up and realize the world is made up of people that are not necessarily smarter than you or better than you. So it's this idea that the young people here, or any age really, that we can accomplish anything together. Being, um, I always implore people that I meet that are college kids. So whether you come to work for me or somebody else, only go somewhere that is in alignment with your ethical or aspirational point of view. So don't work, if some guy offers you a million bucks to work for him and you find him repugnant, why would you ever do that? You're selling, essentially selling your soul. Conversely, if you could get 100 or $10,000 to go work for the most fabulous company ever, I would take it, any position. If You could work for Apple or Patagonia or whatever motivates you, whatever you're interested in. So again, authenticity and then humility, being present, being happy with what you have when you have it, and not always asking about the next promotion or what's in it for me. And then the rest comes. I think the rest comes naturally.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of your biggest wins,
1: failures, you know, and maybe surprising events in your career. One, of, I think one of our biggest wins came out of potentially one of our worst times, which was post-09, 08, excuse me, when the Credit crisis happened, and equity seized up in the market. And yet, shockingly, the largest demographic glut since the baby boom—the millennials—were in college. So, you were about to receive the largest group of human beings ever assembled on planet Earth, or at least in the United States. That we're going to need—guess what? Apartments. Mm -hmm. Yet, no one would finance them because they lost money in subprime mortgage lending, which has absolutely nothing to do with multi-family at all. So I was running our development company, great, congratulations, <laughs> you can develop absolutely nothing. So I hung my head and I went around and I read the Wall Street Journal every day and said the world was ending and everything's terrible and then one day I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. We already I already told you about the demographics that were coming, that wasn't hidden. So we went out to look for equity, and a lot of people told us no, most of our institutions because they were sidelined, and we were able to form a partnership with a private individual, in this case, Penny Pritzker, who is a fabulous human being and business person, who had the wherewithal and entrepreneurial attitude to zig when others were zagging, and we created a fund with her. And... We were able to start an extraordinary amount of deals. Ironically, by the end of '09, a lot of money had come back anyway. But I thought
0: was, she had her own development company at one point.
1: She owns half of Debbie Harmon's group. Um, oh yeah. Uh, Artemis. yeah, Artemis. Artemis. Yeah, but Artemis.
0: she had one of your former development guys who I almost did a deal with. which your old boss. Yeah, um, Does it
1: worked for him. I yeah. think Richard worked for the Pritzker's at some point. Yes. There was called. Yeah. yeah she she did have a development in, in a previous cycle at her own development before. Before, yeah before the credit crisis. Interesting. When the credit crisis happened, she decided, and I can't speak for her, but made an investment decision to invest with developers. Got it. And she took a platform ownership in Artemis, and she took a non-platform. We just created an equity fund and did a number of deals with her and it gave us the catalyst so it's turning a bad moment so I I view that as one of our largest successes and good for me to learn that just because everybody's hanging their head maybe there's extreme opportunity in those moments and wouldn't you know today and every day around us is like that right now which is where no is the override the sentiment right now in the world and we're going to solve for yes that's what we're going to do. So what about uh, failures? I think when you look back on your life at least I'll speak for myself you always regret the things you didn't do like that damn CVS deal you keep bringing up. (laughs) Um, It's the one I, I have fond memories of what I did but beat myself up for those that I didn't do. And there's been a number of deals that I didn't do rightly or wrongly. But in my mind, if did you take enough risk? And I already mentioned that I want to protect our investors and my employees. So it's probably good I'm not swinging for grand slams every day. But on the other hand, you wonder if you had just pushed a little harder, could have you accomplished more? Well, it's interesting. On the flip side,
0: many of my guests have said Boy, the best decision I ever made was something not that I
1: didn't do, too. So yes, well, right. I've had a number of those where I've not done something and I'm high-fiving myself and my colleagues for having had the fortitude of doing not doing it. Yeah, but I do think that failure is, you know, maybe not recognizing some opportunity when others did. maybe i should have created a lot if i had raised a hundred million dollars maybe i should have raised 500 million dollars maybe there's a exponential quality that if you ignore i mean it's hindsight right a nice problem to have it would be a yeah i'm sure i've made other failures in my life i'm confident of that Mm -hmm. but every day we live and learn and good and bad yeah so what about surprises what what hits you out of what, what came out of left field I never
0: thought this would happen, you know, good or bad, let's say.
1: Uh, The pandemic, obviously, was one. If you had told me I was sitting in a half-empty office environment three years after a (laughs) pandemic, I mean, I I would look at you like you were crazy. I misjudged that. I misjudged my employees' desire to be in the office five days a week. Mm -hmm. I misjudged that. And now I'm starting to wonder if I'm misjudging – Whether being in the office five days a week is even the right thing. I mean, we're starting to question our very fundamental beliefs. So now I'm just trying to be more Mm open-minded. So that really came out of left field, I'll tell you, really big time. So
0: if your 25-year-old self were sitting here, what would you tell (laughs) them?
1: That it's a long... Enjoyable journey, and that they're good days and they're bad days. But over time, it's what what a how privileged and lucky are we to be doing this? And just to hang in there all the time because there's rain and then there's sun, you know? I mean, it's just part of the whole deal. It's, it's, and how do we, how do you react to those negative moments or negative cycles? I think it's a determinant of success. My last question. Sure. But I ask
0: everyone, if you could put a billboard on the Capitol Beltway with a message for millions to see, what would it say?
1: I might need chat GPT to help me with this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think if I, I don't necessarily have a perfect expression, but I think if we could, if I could leave the world Knowing that our business or that business of any sort can make a positive impact on the world or on humanity, could elevate humanity. I would love for more people to realize that so that the entrepreneur in in her basement somewhere knows that her work could actually be transformative to the world or additive. I love this, that idea, and I believe it. And I think too often business or capitalism is thought of as this dirty word or something you just don't really talk about. So something to that effect where it was informative that this can be a good thing for all. That's great, Toby.
0: And I'll just add to what you just said that a book that I'm currently reading, I think might interest you. And I don't know if you've ever followed or read Seth Godin before. Yes. Yes. His recent book is called Song of Significance.
1: Oh, that's amazing. And it's exactly about what you just said. I will buy it today. <laughs> I really will. It's really good. Good. Thank you for the recommendation and thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Appreciate Toby. It, Appreciate the time. Thank
0: you. So we just listened to Toby Bizzuto, the son of Tom Bizzuto, who took over the reins of the company in 2015 of the Bizzuto Group, perhaps the leading multifamily developer in the region. And I've been I've known his father since 1988 when they started the company 35 years ago, so a long time understanding of the company, and uh, met Toby early in his career there and tracking it. And I wanted to, you know, get the contrast between father and son. So I'm as usual I'm bringing on my podcast postscript cohort, and it's, it's Colin Madden this time, and he's my
3: longtime partner on this process so Colin welcome thanks John Good to be here again in another interesting podcast he did here I'll just jump right in and kind of kind of jump right into the, the family Legacy aspect of this podcast and of his career I thought it was interesting to hear his journey from a young age and then to take over the family business and his successes since taking over the reins of the company it was also interesting to hear about the Harvard Business School education course for for people in their scenario where you're transitioning a a large company. You always hear about the the unsuccessful transitions of large companies and it's it's probably more rare to hear about the successful transitions. Uh, I had never known there was this Harvard business school for the that Mm -hmm. issue. But I guess it makes a ton of sense. So interesting to hear that they use that and it was helpful to them, but also other families in the in the region had suggested it to them. So I thought that was a an interesting course. Yeah. I wanted to get your take on, you know, the family role and that dynamic and the challenges that come along with a transition like this. And also just the challenges of kind of growing up in the company as heir parents, I'm sure it's not as easy as it sounds and you, you kind of have to go the extra mile. So you're fighting off like the nepotistic yes. standard, I guess. So it sounds like he was very aware of, of that people would be thinking that and, um, I think he shaped his career to address that situation. I think oh, he very humbly did so. Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting. They not only
0: did he and his father do it, but John Slidell and his son Duncan Slidell, who worked there also at the same time, mm-hmm. and they started at the same time. John and 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 Tom and Rick Mostyn were the three founders of the company back in 1988. They had worked mm-hmm. at Oxford. I didn't get into this in this episode, but Tom and Tom's episode—they had worked together at Oxford Development Company back in the in the '80s, and the company folded because of the tax law change in 1986. So Tom and his partners had to figure out what to do, and so they went and started their own company. But John became John and Rick became mentors to Toby as he came in, mm-hmm. uh, and that was on purpose. That was Tom's design to make sure that he would separate himself from his son and allow the his two partners to guide you know Toby's experience coming into the company but they had heard from actually the 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 Folger family Brian Folger and Cameron Pratt that they had gone through the program before at Harvard so mm-hmm. they said they told Tom you should try this we think it's important mm-hmm. to have a, a clear and clean transition and, you know, in a large organization, you're going to have people saying, oh, here he comes, the, the heir apparent, you know, mm-hmm. it's, your treatment as a as a leader could be a little different. And it's sometimes difficult because there's a built-in prejudice there yeah, uh, and favoritism, you know, at least perceived favoritism. So they wanted to make sure that it didn't look that way. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's what Tom, why he made sure that his partners were more interfacing with him with his son than, right. than he was. And it didn't look like it was his father's son routine that, mm-hmm. you know, which was important. And then the same with Duncan and, and, and John Slidell, as it turns out, obviously Tom and Toby now are the owners of the company. John has retired and, and Duncan moved on to the Lincoln property company. And is the leader in the region for them. So it was an interesting, that was an interesting thing. I wanted to get into it because I'd heard from Tom about it in the first Mm -hmm. episode that they had done it. So I wanted to get Toby's perspective of that. So one of the reasons I did this episode is I wanted to contrast their leadership styles a little bit and understand it. And Toby brought up his music experience and he talked about his, you know, his mother's influence on him and music and he his passion for music. And he started his career in music. He was this Sony Sony as an intern, and then he worked for another record company for a year and then looked around and said, you know, this isn't what I want to do long term. You know? He said, nah, this, isn't, this isn't me looking at older senior executives. They went back and said, Dad, I want to consider
3: the bus your business, you know. And yeah, uh, so that's where it went. What do you, do you think, think his experience in the music industry and just experience as a musician has shaped the company in any way? Uh, did you get any? Well, he did say
0: he wanted to take it in an artistic direction to some mm-hmm. extent.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Actually, that's part of the title of this episode. I just came up with uh, his artistic leadership. uh mm-hmm. It contrasts a little bit with his father's uh, because he has a, you know, a creative bent to it. And he talked a little bit about his creativity and his thought process, especially in the amenities, the projects that they develop and, you know, and the feeling and the ambiance of things and art within the built within the, the space. But the other thing I told him about, which I thought was fascinating, was every Bizudo property that I've been in, there's a smell, there's a scent, mm-hmm. that they, and that's part of the experience. And I yeah. think it might be a combination of his influence as well as the other podcast guests I had is Julie Smith, who has a very strong hospitality bent to her as well. and She talked about it in her episode. Right. But Overlaying all of that is the Ritz-Carlton experience that they had, which I thought was really an interesting
3: aspect that we talked about. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting. I think he had a quote that said, high touch will never replace high tech. And that's right. I thought that was a, a salient message. Uh, but also it's it's not that they're ignoring high-tech, it's just they're just dual tracking both uh at the same time and kind of being at the the vanguards of both. Aspects of the multifamily well, yeah. of, of both high touch and tech. I think they're one of the leaders in amenity spaces and creating yes. experiences and the sensory experience you mentioned <clears throat> and the art, but also it sounds like they have a, a fairly sophisticated chatbot for their multifamily sales leads. Yeah, Um and it sounds like it's sophisticated enough to to trick humans. So you know, it's not just off the shelf, and they've probably really thought how. That that bot responds. Uh and I guess I guess have you heard of the Turing test of you're having a discussion with a computer and you can't tell if mm-hmm. uh if, yeah. if it's a human or not. And it sounds like
2: whatever yeah. whatever yeah. tenant yeah.
3: tenant was talking to Ivy failed the Turing test. So yeah, I just thought it was interesting. It's not that they're ignoring tech, it's and like purely focusing on unique experiences, or they're just doing both at the same time and you know it's interesting well. it, it's the dichotomy that we're
0: facing and I think in humanity right now with mm-hmm. the growth of mm-hmm. AI is you know we want to be together physically and that's human nature is to physically be together you want you want to be close to others he talked about it an interesting dynamic which I thought was interesting is to being together alone or alone together which I thought was an interesting concept You know, people don't want to spend all their time in their units, isolated Mm -hmm. from others, but they don't want to be interrupted either. So they Mm -hmm. want to go downstairs and put their headphones on and sit next to each other and focus themselves on something else, you know, or individual spaces. And, you know, that's, as I said, the dichotomy of today's society is uh, we want to be together, but we don't want to be interrupted. We want to have focused time and
2: and. Mm-hmm.
0: Things done. and this AI experience is, you know, taking away a lot of, you know, routine type activity, and so you know the 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 tech and the human experience, he's trying to ma- maximize. Yeah, it seems.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> it's it is interesting, and I think the point of I think he mentioned Starbucks where you could just mobile order, run in. Right, not, not talk to anyone is is amazing. Like I, I personally love that aspect of today's society. But I guess there is a risk of like over optimization of your life and you you miss those random moments of interaction. Exactly. So I mean, uh, I don't know. Well, I think we'll, we'll one day we'll find out, but it is
0: You're going back to the office probably three I mean, he talked about it three days a week. Does that matter? And He said, if I try to push it to five, I'll lose employees. He he believes Mm -hmm. that's particularly if he asks people to mandate coming in on a Friday. He thinks people will leave because other employers won't do that. So what's that fine line? And I think we're still figuring that out as to Mm -hmm. how much you need to be in the office, what's important about that, and how much freedom you want to allow your employees to have to accommodate their personal needs. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we're moving
3: in uncertain waters there. What's your company's experience? We're mostly back. I would say I'm in five days a week with the occasional work from home Fridays, if more in the summer, but I'm in five days a week. Going from five days a week to fully remote and then back in, you are more aware that there are those moments of, of interaction that you wouldn't have experienced while working from home, and just osmosis around what's going on around you. You know, because I sit around a bunch of people and don't necessarily work with them on a day to day all the time, but they're always working on something else where I'm learning, or they have a question, or I have a question. I think, either productive, you're more productive in certain situations, and I, I think, in office is going to make a comeback maybe not to the degree that you know 2019 in office but i think there is just something that you miss if your whole company's remote interesting and on that topic i thought what was interesting is how work from home is impacting multi-family sites and it's becoming 24 7 mm-hmm. operations yeah. that's that's something i have heard of but didn't really think of too much i don't i don't really work becoming much more the, of a hotel multi but yeah more of a hotel um,
0: than an than apartment building
3: yeah, it's that's an interesting dynamic of the of the work from home phenomenon mm-hmm. that yeah they're now living in so hotels basically so the employment situation changes the
0: the cost of operating an apartment building Mm-hmm. Goes up because personnel is usually the highest cost, one of the highest cost pieces of uh, of operating apartments. Uh, even though it's not a dense, it's nothing like the percentage of a hotel, which is usually over half the cost of a hotel operation is personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, will it go up that way? And what does that do to the bottom line of hotel of apartment projects over time? Yeah if the rent if you can't achieve the rent so it's that dynamic and he talked about it how much do i spend on, on on amenities how much do i spend on my people and then how much rent can i get how much of a premium do i get to, to make that really high end and then he talks also about his tenant base and i said so what about affordable housing toby and he said well we do accommodate affordable housing, but we do it usually in partnership with affordable housing nonprofits. So the perfect example that we ended up concluding on is the Chevy Chase Lake Project, which is under construction now, finishing. So at one end of the site, there's a high-rise property that's owned by Montgomery County Housing Opportunity Commission, which is obviously a nonprofit housing, public-private Entity here in the county, and they built an affordable project that has up to, I think, up to fifty percent of AMI uh, tenants there. Uh, so fairly low income, relatively low on a relative basis. And he talked about the customer service is he expects to be equal to the Ritz Carlton for sale project that is the other end of the of the site. It's a big site, but they they have like five high-rise buildings now up, up there. They have two apartment buildings that are you know market rate, and then they have that one, and then there's the the con the condos, which is the Ritz-Carlton project, I think mean, it's four, and there's a retail component as well, which includes Amazon.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's quite a project, and yeah, it looks great. They have a, as I said, they have the the full spectrum of income in that, in that, in that project. So the dynamics of that plus very high end amenities. So you have the ability to build the high, high touch, high service and a a complete spectrum of income levels. I mean, they don't have section eight housing in there. So it's not completely down at the, at the bottom end of the of the spectrum, but you know, for Montgomery County, it's a pretty broad range in that close mm-hmm. connection. So, it'll be interesting to see the social dynamic of that as it as it evolves.
3: Yeah. yeah, it looks fantastic. Excited to check it out. I know it's right down the road from from us, so I think it looks it's great for the community. They um, have a grant and a grand opening this fall. Okay.
0: So other
3: thoughts Uh about the the conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on. He did just seem to have you know very humble leadership skill sets. He used we a lot. He up and down the the company organization. He kind of respects everyone from the top to the bottom the same way. And I think Mm -hmm. it was very evident that he really cares about his employees. Really cares about the culture of the company. And I think that's. You know, he he kind of sets the culture at the top, and and it, it kind of infiltrates through all their products as like the bazoodo way, I would say. One bazoodo, he called it. Mm-hmm. And That's I I'd right. read his his father's book, and the I you know he has quick wisdom insights in that book, and yep. I feel like you can you can tell that he was raised that way, and it's coming out, and how it, he he was discussing with you about his employees and. It's very much team oriented and he was hesitant to take much credit for anything he's successfully achieved. And I thought that was an interesting. His his father, Tom
0: is a philosopher.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And he wrote, he's wrote the the book called about, you know, wisdom of an ordinary man. Mm -hmm. So it's really quite something. I mean, that's one thing that uh, Toby's picked up on significantly and learned from. Is that whole philosophical approach to life mm-hmm. that Tom has. So Toby overlays it with the artistic. So it's it's quite a blend. And Toby is bl- says he's blessed because he has three mentors, basically, his father and the two founders. He said, John, I couldn't have a better leadership opportunity than this one mm-hmm. because I have those three men to go to if I have any you know, issues or questions about things that come up and it's, it's a real blessing. And he did yeah. cite that for eight straight years, the company has been one of the top, you know, Washington post employment employee love, empl- voted by employees as, you know, the place to work. So it's a place a lot of people want to be and want to work because of the
3: culture they have built there. Yeah. I thought, He said that he has access to the world's greatest board at his disposal for free. Exactly, um, which I thought was an interesting, dynamic that he has, which I'm a little jealous of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's you know,
0: it's built. It's a culture of 35 years of of doing it right, doing it the right way. And I think, as I said, Tom brings that philosophical approach to things, and Mm -hmm. that was it's really. Paid off in spades for them over time, and they've learned from experience. They've gone through enough pain, you know, with with financial markets and everything else. And as Tom said, he was a lone wolf in the in the in the marketplace when he first started his apartment business. They're just apartments were down the ladder from institutional interest at that mm-hmm. time when he first started, and now apartments are the darling. And he just you know just happened to be the In that place. Although now apartments might be fading a little bit down below industrial and data centers and other special uses. But the concentration of activity now in apartment buildings, as we talked about earlier, is higher than it's ever been because of you know the the W the work from home thing. So Mm -hmm. it's it'll be interesting to see if they can keep that culture solid. But you know, he has 3,000 employees and 2,500 of them are on site at each of the, each of the sites that they manage. And, you know, I don't know, he said they have 91,000 units now in their portfolio, which is, yeah, incredible. Big. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but he doesn't want to be the biggest, you know, there's <laughs> some that have multi hundred thousand units. like right. Yeah. I thought his, so, his allusion to Starbucks expanding too quickly and kind of losing the, what made them successful in the first place exactly. in that expansion was a, a wise thought and comparison, which yeah, connecting the dots across industries was, cool to hear about. Cause I know that I guess they expanded when Howard Schultz stepped down and then, yes, that's right. I think there's a story when either when he was right back as CEO or kind of in his retirement moment, he like walked into a Starbucks and it just smelled like sandwiches. And he was like, this is a coffee shop. It shouldn't smell like food. And like like that, that kind of message was that they kind of lost touch with what, what Starbucks was. And, you know, I think it's easy when you're having a ton of success to expand as quickly as possible. I think it's, it's very wise to do it in a measured approach without losing, you know, the the tangible and intangible aspect of what made you successful in the first place. Well, I think the, one of the biggest statements
0: that Toby made that I thought was the most impressive was tenants that would move from other cities to Washington or from Washington, to other cities that had Bazudo managed apartments said they wanted to live in a Bazudo property. And it was because of the, the service and the, the high touch of the feeling that they had living there because they felt, you know, serviced or helped at living and and wanted that kind of experience Mm -hmm. so and again that that's the high service approach and people that can afford to pay for that will pay for that kind of service it's like going to a nice restaurant as he talked about Mm -hmm. you go sit down with you know he talked about that whole routine with his with your significant other you sit down at a nice restaurant you dress up you act differently. You expect things to be, you know, special. And that's the way he wants to treat his tenants is been a, a special way, which obviously is paid off and will continue mm-hmm. to pay off. I believe he's right. A segment of the market will never go away as long as we're humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. So
3: anything else you want to chat about? No, I think I think that's it. Was curious actually, the Seth Godin book you referenced. What's what's the I don't know, 10 to 15 second spark notes on what that's about. Well it's he calls it the song of significance, is
0: the name of the book. And it's about what's important about being at work, why and teams, and the the obvious thing of and and this is what I think I sensed the whole. Culture at the Zudo is, is the significance of what you're doing together,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and working together as a team, and what does that mean? How does that, how does that work? Why is it important for people to be together? Uh, what is that synergy that you have as a, as a team and the group? What does the different team members bring together as a as a group, and what do you bring in individually? And, you know, is your life significant and is the group of the team significant in Mm -hmm. what it and be different? You know, you look at what Steve Jobs said, you know, stay foolish, you know, do something different. Mm -hmm. You know, make make an impression, you know, stand out, do something different. Mm -hmm. You know, unless you stand out, you're going to just fit in and. And, and, and as Seth Godin says in his book, you'll just go on the race to the bottom. You don't want to be on the race to the bottom. You want to be in the race to the top. The right. way in the race to the top is to be very significant, be different, be unusual. And I'll just conclude here by saying, and I'm not trying to sing my own praises here, but I think I'm doing something different in this podcast. And mm-hmm. when I think about, you know, nobody else, I've been in this business 44 years and I, know, I don't know anybody else that's doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it. There's a couple of people. There's one fellow on the West Coast doing it, where he's doing it more of a national approach, but I wanted to aim at the market that I knew best at Washington and to tell the tales of the leaders here and then share my experiences, which I think hopefully is a significant experience for people listening. And, and I thank you, Colin, for helping, supporting that over the, year, over the time. We're looking yeah. now at, at. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be four years since I started this. So, wow. uh, yeah. yeah, this is the 90th episode. So, hmm. yep. Good job with it. Keep on, keep on, keeping on. It's been fun. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate your help with it. So, on that note, thank you, listeners, for joining us today, and really appreciate your ongoing support. And in the next. Probably a week or two, I'm going to put out a a note to people that have been listening, kind of an email blast, and ask for a little bit of a contribution to do this because we are now a nonprofit organization called The Iconic Journey in CRE, which has a community and this podcast, and I really appreciate your support as, as to keep this going for maybe another two to three years, potentially. So... Thank you very much for for your support and interest in the podcast, and thank you, Colin, for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.